You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. All right, welcome to Modern Day Debates. Today we are debating socialism versus capitalism. So we're really excited to have um, all of our debaters here today. Um, we have, actually, I know um, everyone, or I've dealt with everyone before in the past, and they're all really, really cool people. So um, I'm personally really excited to be modding this one. Um, so if you really like debates, we are a channel who hosts tons of debates, so definitely go and hit subscribe. Um, also, we just, we really want to thank uh, everyone for being here. Um, I'm going to actually give everyone a chance to kind of introduce themselves. Um, and if you really like any of the speakers or all of them, their links are in the description. So if you want to hear more from them, definitely go and check that out. Um, Brenton, I'm going to start with you. What would people be able to find at your link? Hey, so uh, I'm Brenton Lengel. Uh, I am a playwright, anarchist, and uh, Ringo-nominated comic creator of Snow White Zombie Apocalypse. Uh, the Kickstarter for which, by the way, is up right now for issue number three. We just passed, uh, oh yeah, $12,000. And um, like, it's only been up for like three days. So guys, if you want to get in on the ground floor on this series, check it out. Uh, you'll find it my YouTube channel. Um, you're going to find me vlogging about politics, uh, the state, philosophy, and Buddhism, um, as well as a lot of debates. Um, so, yeah, check that out. Amazing. All right. Non-Compete. What could people find at your link? Uh, yeah. Hi, I'm uh, EJ with Non-Compete. I do uh, socialist anarcho-communist uh, videos and live streams. I do also uh, puppet shows in the same vein, um, which don't get a lot of views. But if you want to see a communist puppet show or an anarchist puppet show, come check them out. Um, and also currently the most recent project is I'm working on a trilogy of books with my comrade Luna, who is a Marxist-Leninist here in Vietnam. Uh, she's doing a book on dialectical materialism. Uh, and Nora, who is a actually not a content creator, but just an on-the-ground activist and uh, uh, organizer, she's doing a book on uh, the material conditions in the USA right now. And I'm working on a book on applying uh, leftist theory. So that should be coming out within a couple of months, hopefully. At least one of the three books. We'll, we're not sure which will come out first. But yeah, so look out for those and check out my channel if you want to see more stuff like that. Amazing. All right. Splinters, what would people be able to find at your link? 
Yeah, so as far as my Twitch stream goes, that's where most of my news, politics, and primarily debate content live. I do these kinds of debates as well as debate critiques where we kind of examine other people's performances and talk about what we can learn from them. And then if you go to YouTube, you'll see that content there as well. But in addition to that, I have some more like media analysis focused stuff. So if you like me here today or any of that sounds interesting, be sure to check that stuff out and come say hi. Amazing. All right. And finally, but not least, Layman, <laughs> what can people find at your link? Yeah, so um, my name is Layman on YouTube. I'm also on Twitter under that moniker. Um, my content is, there, there's not really a specific aim to it necessarily. It's just kind of tools that I use in order to just sort of form my thoughts around different topics. And I'll debate different topics, have discussions about different topics. Um, very, very sparsely, I'll make like a video essay on something. The whole point is really just for me to articulate my thoughts on things and try to, I guess, put that out there so it can be criticized or supported or whatever. And it just leaves an avenue for me to make better sense of the world overall, I guess. And just doing so, you know, <laughs> sort of acknowledging that like I am a layman, I'm not an expert in any of the things that I talk about and yeah. All right, sounds great. Um, so the structure of tonight's debate is going to be 10 minute openings for each of our speakers. Then we're going to go into about an hour of open discussion followed up by 30 minutes of question and answer. So if you have a question and you want it to be guaranteed to be read, definitely fire it into the super chat and uh, we will um, read it at the end. So without further ado, we're going to start with the socialist side. Um, Brenton, if you want to start with your opening, and then we'll end with splinters and layman. So the debate tonight is on capitalism versus socialism. And this is a topic that I am really invested in because as a red-blooded American male, I was raised to love capitalism and hate socialism. And after all, who wouldn't love capitalism? Just look around. One could easily say upon first glance that we in America are living at the absolute pinnacle of human civilization. We elect our leaders rather than having them imposed upon us. We choose our jobs rather than having them chosen for us. Our stores are bursting with more products and food than we can even fully imagine, let alone buy and consume. And it would seem that the only thing standing between us and the American dream is our own willingness or lack thereof to work hard and apply our intelligence and passion in this economic proving ground and make our fortune. And that's what our media tells us and our textbooks tell us and our universities tell us that we're all the scrappy hero fueled by desire and ambition. And if we could just work hard enough and just be smart enough, everything will turn out wonderfully. But of course, a big part of growing up is learning that this is simply not the case. The fact is that despite having all the power and convenience seemingly at our fingertips, people are unfulfilled and alienated, and many in the first world live in a state of extreme poverty and work themselves into an early grave for pennies on the dollar. According to the P Department of Housing and, Her and Urban Development, as of January 2019, there were at least 567,715 homeless individuals in the United States. And that was before COVID swallowed the nation and cursed us with the worst economy since the Great Depression and caused the worsening eviction, uh, the worsening of this looming eviction crisis that we are all now facing. Before all of this, 40 million Americans struggled with hunger in the United States, no doubt significant, significantly more now than in, tw and in 2017, as our economy boomed around us, still 
15 million Americans lived in food insecure households. It makes almost no difference whether it is a time of plenty or a time of famine. As many as one in six children in America do not know where their next meal is coming from. And looming over all of this, like the sword of Damocles, is the seemingly impossible problem of global climate change. The effects of which are all we are already seeing war, famine, pestilence, and environmental devastation on a previously unheard of scale. And it's not like these aren't so there aren't solutions to all these problems. There are 1.5 million empty homes in the United States. That is more than enough for each of the 568,000 homeless people to live in more than one. In fact, we could give three or four homes uh, to each of them and we'd still have homes left over. And that's just factoring in housing uh, and that's just houses, like factoring in apartments and other uh, smaller living spaces. The US Census Bureau estimates that there are well over 17 million vacant properties. Despite our prevalent problems with hunger, Americans waste 40% of the food we produce. We throw away 40 million tons of food a year. And that is a literal metric ton of food per hungry person being wasted. 2,204.62 pounds a year, which factors out to be more than double the daily minimum that a healthy person needs to live comfortably. To return to COVID for a moment, as of yesterday, 253,000 American lives have been sacrificed to this dark god that we call economy. And lest you think that these deaths were unavoidable, I must remind you that in my partner EJ's current home, the country of Vietnam, they have suffered a grand total of 35 deaths to COVID. Not 35,000, 35. As in of today, only 35 Vietnamese have died of COVID and only uh, 1,305 have contracted the disease. For comparison, 1,870,428 new cases of COVID were contracted just yesterday, along with just 1,500 deaths. Uh, Both numbers will increase tomorrow and the next day and the next day with no relief in sight for the foreseeable future. Now, while this comparison is not apples to apples, as both countries are very different, it is impossible to overlook the fact that one major way in which we differ is that the Vietnam is one of the few countries in which profits are not in command of the economy, which then left the Vietnamese with the option of following sensible shutdown and distancing procedures without sacrificing their economy or losing access to necessary services. And let me say that again, in case you didn't hear, while the United States and all of Vietnam's immediate neighbors have been crippled by COVID. Vietnam's economy did not suffer from the shutdown and in fact has grown in every quarter. This wasn't a win-lose situation. The uh, Vietnam's communism made their weathering of the COVID crisis win-win. Deaths in the low double digits along with an overall decrease in poverty and an increase in production. We have also failed to act on global climate change, and now we we can do nothing but mitigate the damage caused by rising global temperatures. But had the fossil fuel industry not purposefully suppressed the information in the 1970s, and if they were not currently running multi-million dollar propaganda campaigns to keep the scientific consensus obscured, even as they spend billions shoring up their own infrastructure against climate-induced threats like rising sea levels, um, because at the end of the day, even as Exxon spent $31 million on disinformation campaigns aimed at the public, they believed their own scientists who were in 100% agreement of the threat that human-caused global warming uh, uh, threatened. <laughs> they knew this decades ago and chose to maliciously lie about it and were exposed in a leaked memo in 2015. But of course, they faced virtually no consequences for their actions. And similarly, no one is feeding those 40 million Americans and landlords and banks are actively kicking more people out and onto the streets during an unprecedented global panic. And so I got to thinking, what even is capitalism? 
Why does everyone tell me it's so great? And if it's so great, why does it allow and perpetuate problems that include, but are in no way limited to the four that I have quickly listed? Uh, and so I did some reading and some searching and some arguing, and I talked to economists and activists and historians, and I came to a definition that I think we can more or less agree upon. Capitalism is an economic and political system that was developed in England in the 17th and 18th centuries, in which the vital industry and resources within a nation are owned by small groups of private individuals and operated for profit. It is characterized by speculative investment by moneyed individuals for the express purpose of turning a profit for those same individuals. This is the capitalist class, a group of wealthy elites who by virtue of their ownership of land, technology, and resources earn their living not by the sweat of their brow, but by reaping the benefits of, the, of profitable economic activity done by the entities that they own and control. No matter your feelings about capitalism, if you work a job and earn a paycheck and this paycheck is your primary means of subsistence, you are not a capitalist, you are a worker. Capitalism drives production and innovation by this method of speculative investment. Money is invested, new products are created and businesses are perpetuated only because the investment keeps coming. If the investors ever slow, stop investing, or withdraw their funds in large enough numbers, the economy crashes, paychecks bounce, and people starve. This is why the United States could not bring itself to respond properly to COVID, because this is what it means to work within an economy where profits are in command. So what has happened here is we have built a system where all of us are essentially beholden to the whims of a tiny overclass of individuals. Worse, this class is not entirely united. They do not act with a single mind or will and collectively do not have any regard for what they are doing to the world around them. How can they? All they do is take money, invest it, and watch the numbers go up. And when those numbers go down, well, then they freak out and retreat to their bunkers and gated communities and hold on to their remaining dragon's hoard of wealth to wait for a sunnier day. And that is just how capitalism is supposed to work. This doesn't even begin to address corruption, bug exploits, and outright gaming of this system that clever and malicious individuals engage in for their own benefit at the expense of the rest of us, to say nothing of the fact that we have essentially built the financial equivalent of the bus from speed, except the bomb will go off not only if the bus drops below 50 miles per hour, but also if Keanu Reeves uh, doesn't infinitely accelerate to avoid that exact same disaster. That is a wonderful premise for a movie, but a terrible and horrifying reality to live in. But there may still be those of you who are asking yourselves, well, why is this bad? Shouldn't the economy expand? Shouldn't people take a risk with their money and be rewarded? Don't we want that behavior? And in a certain very simplistic sense, you're right. But the problem is you're missing the forest for the trees. If our economic and political system is reliant on these individuals to continue to foot the bill and provide the lifeblood that keeps the gears of our industry turning, how can we ever get them to stop or even slow when that is exactly what we need them to do in moments now? like COVID and global warming? How do we change the course when our own industrial growth turns cancerous and in and of itself becomes the very existential threat to human civilization? The answer is we can't. As I have said, except in rare cases, these investors don't actually see the whole picture. They don't care that Coca-Cola hired mercenaries to murder union leaders in Nicaragua. They didn't care that the British East India Company starved 10% of the entire Indian subcontinent to death within a single year. They didn't care when Leopold II murdered 40 million Cong Congolese, all to acquire a rather large stockpile of rubber and several tons of different kinds of rocks and minerals. They didn't feel bad about American chattel slavery, and they don't feel bad when a clothing factory collapses in Bangladesh, killing thousands, or a Foxconn factory in China drives its workers to suicide while they assemble the iPhones. They don't care that 253,000 of our countrymen have died, 253,000 grandmothers and grandfathers and parents and uncles and aunts, and yes, even children, have been taken before their time by COVID. 
Or if they do decide they care about this, they don't put two and two together and realize that all of this inhumanity is happening just to make the numbers in their computer database go up. Essentially what we have done, what capitalism does on the macro levels is it places the levers of power into the hands of people who have nothing to do with the actual source of their income. As such, we must only depend on synergy to make sure that these activities which make those numbers go up are actually socially desirable activities. Now, sometimes they are because synergy is an important principle in nature. And often we find that uh, we are guided towards an end that none of us individually can envision but all collectively benefit from but it is not the be all and end all of human activity and allowing people with no real skin in the game to drive the car that is human society is going to wind up running us right off a cliff. We desperately need to move beyond the system. We must break the power of the capitalist class and come together around a better, more sane and compassionate system if we are to survive the next few centuries. We urgently need to solve the riddle of a better way to live for ourselves, for our children and ultimately our planet. Because if we do not, if human society cannot adapt to a changing world, we will drive our to extinction, and that will be no one's fault but our own. Now, as I continue this debate, I believe that that system that transcends capitalism, that gets us away from the tyranny of profit, uh, is socialism and can be found in these socialist traditions uh, throughout the world, and we will get into that. But right now, let's deal with the problem in front of us and transcend capitalism as quickly as possible. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brenton. Non-compete, if you want to follow up. Sure. What's my time uh, limit on the intro? Just so I can keep minutes. track of it. Ten okay, minutes. gotcha. Okay. All right. So um, yeah, <clears throat> Brenton went through a lot of the data and facts and figures that I would have uh, started with. So I won't bore you with the, a repeat, but I do want to say that I myself am a former capitalist. Um, I've run about five businesses. Uh, two of them were failures and two of them succeeded and one of them kind of broke even at the end. Um, so I feel like I've had a pretty broad experience. Uh, my biggest company, I had about 15 employees at any given time for most of the tenure of the, of the time that the business was operational. Uh, and I'm very well aware, looking back now, of how I exploited my workers. I know exactly what my costs were, what my overhead was, what I charged my clients, and what I paid my employees and my subcontractors. And I know that I pocketed the fruits of my workers' labor. Now, if I had a job where, say, I was charging a client 100 bucks, I paid a worker 20 bucks, I put in, you know, 20, 30 bucks for the overhead of the business and I pocketed the rest. Sure, I did some work, okay, to, to contribute to landing the job, doing some of the sales, doing some of the management or coordination or whatever you want to call it. I did. And so I do, I do feel I deserve some compensation for that. But I took well more than my fair share, uh, especially when it comes to areas of my business, which I was running, you know, uh, nominally as the capitalist, uh, but which I knew nothing about whatsoever. So for instance, I had an advertising agency and we spun off a web development company and I really didn't know much about web development at all. I could maybe do like a WordPress page if, you know, if I had a week or two to, to fiddle around with it, but I hired a bunch of really sharp, young, uh, recent college grad, uh, software developers and, um, and web developers and designers who really knew their shit. And they essentially ran that, uh, business, uh, for me. And that's what capitalists, should do if you want to succeed. Any, if you read any book on, on basic capitalism, they'll say human resources are very important. Hire people who are smarter than you. Make sure that you are able to delegate and, and hire people that you can trust to delegate to. Okay, these are like basic principles of capitalism. And if anybody, that's one of the things that's interesting about capitalists is that, you know, uh, I say we, since I'm a former capitalist, talk out of both sides of our mouth. So, you know, when we're uh, trying to make capitalism seem great, we talk about how we love to innovate. We talk about how we, you know, uh, have these great ideas that drive the business forward. 
But when we write books of advice on how to run a business, it's always, you know, hire great people. People are what run your business. I did consulting for human resources for a couple of years, and I learned a lot about how uh, capitalists talk about human resources behind the scenes and how much they do value their labor and how much they do value the ideas that they generate. I know that my web development company, uh, I could never have run that by myself, but I reaped all of the, uh, all the profits from that. And there were times whenever I even made bad decisions and I, you know, I was like, I'm the boss, I'm the owner, uh, you do what I say. And it backfired because I didn't really know what the hell I was talking about, but I had that arbitrary power and authority over the work lives of my employees. I had, I got to decide basically how they spent their time for most of the, their waking lives, uh, you know, and, and it was a very autocratic arrangement. Sure, at the time I felt like I was, you know, a fair boss and I felt like I was treating them fairly, you know, I felt like I wasn't very restrictive. But the fact of the matter is, um, I had the power to fire them at any time, especially in South Carolina, which was a right to work state, as they say. Um, so I feel like I'm pretty familiar with the power imbalances of capitalism since I've been on that side of it. I've also worked in corporate environments. I've worked as a freelancer. I've been an Uber driver and I've been a subcontractor for construction and, and electrical work with my dad. So I've had, I, I, I'm not, uh, I don't know everything, of course, but I've, I've had experience in many areas. And I think my longest term tenure of experience is about 10 years as a capitalist. So I do feel like I understand how I exploited my employees. So that said, I want to talk about first the voluntary arrangement of capitalism as capital, as capital logs like to put it. I, I like to distinguish between capital logs and capitalists. A capitalist is a person who owns the means of production, who owns a factory or a business or something like that. A capital log is what I call somebody who just buys into and believes in the, the idea of capitalism, whether they're a worker or a capitalist. Um, and capital logs often like to say that this is a voluntary arrangement. I was running my biggest business during the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, 2009. I was getting stacks of resumes every week. And I was throwing them away because I couldn't hire anybody else. Uh, my employees had stopped paying, not my employees, my customers had stopped paying me. Um, I had a lot of nonprofit and real estate clients at the time. And uh, a lot of them stopped paying me. So I had to kind of freeze my business. I couldn't grow it for a, about a year or two. And I was just throwing away stacks of resumes. There were people who were desperate to get a job with me. And I knew that I had employees, specifically those web developers who wanted to leave my company, but they couldn't find a job anywhere else. Um, and they were basically forced to work for me and my company with frozen wages, uh, even though they, they desperately deserved uh, raises. Um, and But you know they couldn't because uh, I wouldn't give them raises and they couldn't find another job because there was nowhere else to work. It's a very amazingly similar uh, circumstance to what we have now with COVID-19, where we've had over 1,100 wildcat strikes since COVID began related to things like not getting personal protective equipment, not having paid sick leave, not having sufficient health care to cover somebody if they do get sick, being forced to work at, at frankly, uh, ridiculous jobs like at Hobby Lobby, uh, you know, through the pandemic, because their bosses wanted to make a profit. Um, and this is the really the this gets to the marrow of my uh, disillusion with capitalism is the fact that capitalists do have arbitrary power over employees. Look at the economy right now and you realize that in most states, about 50% of renters are facing eviction right now. Before COVID, one in seven Americans relied on food banks and were food insecure. More people died of malnutrition in the USA uh, by far. 45 times more people died of malnutrition in the USA than Vietnam, twice as many as in Cuba. Those are based on uh, numbers that come from the World Health Organization. Uh, so the fact of the matter is the the USA does not provide workers with any sort of social safety net whatsoever. Most those, those numbers, by the way, were all pre-COVID. They're worse now. Food banks are completely overwhelmed right now. You could see uh, miles long backed up lines on the way to food banks in many states and many cities. 
across America. And so in that context where your choices are to work for a capitalist, uh, you know, like Hobby Lobby, like Taco Bell, like uh, whatever, any, any business that's making you come into work and risk your life for them, uh, you have that choice to work for them and keep a roof over your head and have food, uh, at least, you know, and at least not, uh, hopefully have food on your plate. Um, even though a lot of workers that are making minimum wage uh, have starvation wages, but um because yeah, I remember the one in seven figure for people that are food insecure, Those a lot of those people do work. They just also don't make enough money to actually put enough food on the table. Regardless, uh, they can either work for this capitalist or they can go out and face eviction and starve or become even more at risk for starvation. So it's not a voluntary arrangement for the majority of workers. And especially if you speak globally speaking and you look at the you know all of the developing and imperialized nations out there where they really do have the choice of either work or starve, uh, work for a capitalist or starve, I mean, so it's not this voluntary arrangement. I know that as a former capitalist who uh, coerced my workers into working for my company. Um, and, uh, and I wanna also say that there's this other big notion that capitalists deserve their profits because they take a risk. And this completely does not acknowledge the fact that workers take risks. When you get a job somewhere, there is a good chance you might get laid off. Lots of workers have been being laid off throughout this uh, pandemic, as we see, there's also the chance that you could die for your employer. Uh, not just the fact that, you know, all these workers are not getting PPE or paid sick leave or proper protections during work. They're being forced to go out and engage with uh, the public at large, you know, for capitalist profits and risking their lives in that way. But I mean, even before COVID, plenty of workers risked their lives. Pizza delivery drivers are more likely to die on the job than police officers. Uh, there are, you know, obviously lumberjacks and longline fishermen and those sorts of jobs. Those people definitely have risked their lives for a very long time. But beyond that, you have, always have the risk of getting laid off. And I, one last thing I'll say as a former capitalist, um, the number one rule of capitalism is you do not start a business being undercapitalized, and you do not start a business without an exit strategy. Every capitalist will tell you this. You don't bet the farm. If you start a business, you better know how you're going to escape if it doesn't go well. And the majority of businesses in the world, even if they do fail, the people who own them are going to come out okay. I did, and I had two of my five businesses fail, and I came out just fine out of those because I planned it properly to know that if my business did fail, I wasn't going to lose my shirt. And that's what happened. However, most workers who live paycheck to paycheck have about $1,000 in their bank account at any given time, have $6,000 in credit card debt, and make about $30,000 per year. They are not able to sustain a long period of unemployment. So most workers right now are terrified that they're going to lose their job, even though they don't want to be working as the 1,100 strikes since COVID started demonstrates. And there's no chance for them to start their own business, by the way, as well, because the average startup business in the USA costs about $30,000 to get off the ground. And again, the number one reason that businesses fail in the USA is undercapitalization. So it's a myth that anyone can just go out and start a business. Any capitalist will tell you, you have to be very well capitalized to have a good chance of having your business succeed. And it is not a voluntary arrangement. We advocate for democratic control of the workplace. We'll get into that throughout the rest of the debate, but that's the biggest distinction I wanna leave this uh, intro with is that we believe in a democratic workplace, just as we believe in a democratic society. There's no reason for arbitrary, power of capitalists over the working class. And I will stop there. Thank you so much, non-compete. Um, and then we're going to go on to the capitalist side. I think Lehman um, is going to go next, if that's good with you. Yeah, certainly. So yeah, um, today we're here to debate socialism versus capitalism. It's a topic that I personally wrestled with for a very long time throughout my life, given my personal disdain towards materialistic philosophies. I still kind of hold those beliefs today. 
but when I was younger, of course, I was, I was very, very, you know, predisposed just temperamentally to not like hierarchies. Um, you know, way back, I used to be a Nosble adjacent person. Um, a number of years ago, I held all manner of reprehensible philosophical, social, and economic views that I was incredibly incompetent in describing, and I, by and large, kept to myself in fear of looking like an awful person to the world around me, because obviously Nosbulls suck. I think we can all agree on that. Um, I no longer hold to a great deal of the sort of anti-capitalist, anti-modernity views that I used to have, but this definitely reinforces my defense of capitalism now at the age of 24. Um, I would consider myself a capitalist, but a, a reluctant capitalist. So it's important going in, into this debate, um, knowing that I'm not a neoliberal, meaning that I'm not a, I'm not a laissez-faire, pro-deregulation kind of guy, where I attribute some kind of like intrinsic value to the private ownership of the means of production because of, you know, more freedom. Uh, uh, rather, I view capitalism as, uh, rather than an intrinsically good system, the best system that we have compared to its alternative aims, whether it's been like, like I know that fascism, even though it's, I mean, whether or not this capitalists up for debate, um, but I wouldn't consider it the same thing where private ownership sort of bleeds into the state to reinforce a sort of dictatorial ruling via forcible suppression of opposition and strong regimentation of society via ultranationalism or a return to some kind of you know, monarchical society, which of course is really bad. We can all agree on that. It ended in absolutely catastrophic. It, it, it ended horribly. Most of the people, most of the world was starving to death and the material conditions were unfathomably wretched for the average person. And of course, whether or not it's the topic of this debate, uh, socialism. So of course, I could use this opportunity to straw man my opponents and try to turn them all into Stalinists, Leninists, Maoists by criticizing vanguard parties and the idea of a transitional state into socialism. But since this has been demonstrated historically to have wretched outcomes, but most socialists that I run to these days, they condemn those societies and their authoritarian aims. So while I'm totally fine with arguing against some, some tanky shit, um, for the purposes of this conversation, I'd like to focus specifically on steel manning my opponents. And what Shretton and I hope to do is to argue in favor of private ownership of the means of production where the economy is facilitated through private property rights, unless in case of an apparent market failure, I don't think anybody would agree, except for maybe ANCAPs, that the military uh, should be privatized. Um, and I think of course, we're also in favor of, you know, uh, essential healthcare services, um, universal healthcare, um, forms of social security, public options for education, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mostly wanna focus on this, as opposed to worker ownership of the means of production in which the entire society is essentially run democratically by the workers and private ownership has been abolished either by the state or a worker revolution. Um, socialists these days often point to the empirical data on worker co-ops that's presently available to argue for socialism. So this is what I'm interested in going after because not once in any study on worker co-ops will a researcher say in their conclusions and therefore socialism. So when we actually look into the data in these studies, as solid as it is, I don't think it's an argument for socialism. So my biggest, my biggest reasons for this are as follows. So private ownership of the means of production is necessary in order to start a worker co-op and for a worker co-op to function in the manner that it does as per the data. So a meta-analysis uh, conducted by Professor Eric Olson at the University of Missouri in 2013 titled the relative survival of worker cooperatives and barriers to their creation 
finds that the consensus of the existing data is that once created, worker co-ops have survival rates, which meet or exceed that of successful um, traditional business firms. So the traditional like private business, 49% success rate, whereas co-ops, it can go from 60% to even 87%. So that's awesome. And a lot of socialists will use that as an argument for socialism because you think, oh, like workers own, work, worker run versus privately run, amazing. But to quote the researcher, the overwhelming majority of co-ops formed are started out of the pocket of employee owners, no outside investors like a conventional firm. And because of that, worker co-ops are only in areas of industry that are not capital intensive. So all the studies are only on uh, low capital intensive industries. So capital intensive industries, just for the audience, are industries that are measured by how much capital is necessary to put into that given industry. and Worker co-ops, as per this meta-analysis, only yield these results for businesses with industries that are low in how capital intensive they are. So Olson points out in the study that with work, quote, with worker co-ops in general, the best way a co-op survives the first three years is to have a conventional firm, so a private, privately run business, transition into a co-op. So it's not a co-op from the beginning. Therefore, private ownership is optimal for both industries that co-ops work well in, so that'd be low intensive industries, and for more capital intensive industries. So some examples of industries that are more capital intensive would be like automobile manufacturing, oil production and refining, steel production, telecommunications and transportation sectors, like railways, airlines, things like that. Uh, some examples of industries that are less capital intensive would be things like financial services and software development. So from what I can tell, there is no evidence that worker co-ops can adequately account for these industries in a manner that they'd be at least demonstrated or we can infer to be a net benefit to society. Um, the second reason why I'm skeptical of the and therefore socialism claim is that every study, every study on worker co-ops was done in a society which contains private property rights where a business owner, where, where business owners have the voluntary option to pursue either a worker owned firm or a traditional firm. So that voluntary decision making greatly influences the data, especially in regards to mental health and well being, because there are studies on this. Um, as clearly, a voluntary action is far different than an involuntary action, as many papers in the field of psychology would affirm. Uh, a massive meta-analysis by Professor Douglas Cruz titled Research Evidence on the Prevalence and Effects of Employee Ownership of over 70 studies on worker co-ops finds that worker co-ops tend to, and this is a good thing, <laughs> have higher productivity, more stability, more growth, and better performance and survival when compared to the traditional structure. But the samples for this are in the U.S. primarily, as well as other Western capitalist economies like Italy, um, the UK, places like that. So it seems like all the meta-analytic data that anybody brings up as it pertains to co-ops will always run into what I described. Uh, what I think my opponents need to do to convince me of a socialist position is to provide me with an experiment of which we can actually measure all of these effects um, provided in the data above in a socialist situation and not a capitalist situation where there is no private ownership of the means of production. And that's what I would need in order to be swayed onto socialism. And I have not seen such an experiment as of yet. And with that, I kick it off to Trenton.
All right, am I good to go? You're good to go. Excellent. I want to begin by talking a bit about how I think we should talk about and think about this debate going forward before pulling over and expanding upon some of the concepts introduced by my partner in their opening speech. I'll then end by addressing some of the arguments brought up by the affirmative. Firstly, when deciding which sort of economic model best suits our interests, we should understand exactly what those interests are. I contend that those interests are that which will reliably promote the greatest welfare and prosperity for the most people. That is to say, fundamentally, this debate is about what economic model will best make us happy. Given that, there are two absolute truths that we should keep in mind throughout this debate. The first truth is that happiness, satisfaction, and fulfillment are subjective, matters of perception. That said, the best way to ensure a person is prosperous is to let them pursue their own happiness to the greatest extent possible. My contention here is not that we may never restrict the liberty of others, only that doing so is a significant act that ought to demand significant justification. The affirmative position explicitly directly prohibits certain modes of living. If your dream is to take some entrepreneurial vision of yours, realize it and dictate its course in the world, the affirmative position prevents you from doing so. An explicitly socialist framework says that your vision is not your own and demands that control over that vision be diluted. We ought to set a high bar for that kind of restricting policy. The second truth is that despite its failings, especially in countries that refuse to control for market failures, capitalist systems have, without a doubt, delivered prosperity and welfare to hundreds of millions of people the world over. Perhaps the best iteration of capitalism can be seen in the Nordic model, where strong and resilient private sectors have thrived, such that the state is able to readily tap into that wealth for the purposes of correcting market failures, maintaining strong welfare policies, and further enabling citizens to pursue their own happiness. These countries frequently top the charts of the human development indexes, which seeks to measure progress in those areas most critical to prosperity. This truth is important because it shows us two things. One, many of, the, many of the apparent flaws of capitalism are not inherent features. Two, the current systems can work rather well, yet the affirmative is asking us to nonetheless throw all of that away. To avoid throwing the baby out with the bathwater, we again ought to demand significant justification from the affirmative. Moving on to some on-case stuff. In keeping with this theme of choice and its relevance in this conversation, I want to touch upon the Olson 13 evidence cited in our first speech. Olson mentions the following. Worker cooperatives in the U.S. are almost always created as new enterprises using funds from work worker members themselves. The liability of adolescence experienced by new worker co-ops makes this viable only where the initial capital requirements are low, the expected profit rate is high, or both except in circumstances like these, workers are likely to choose conventional employment rather than the uncertain rewards of collective entrepreneurship. One of the as yet unmentioned key takeaways here is that the workers in the status quo choose conventional firms large in part due to the security they offer in many of these industries. Abolishing conventional firms does not do away with the insecurities faced by worker co-ops. It only removes the secure option for those workers who do not have the luxury or the privilege of risk. If we truly care about the working classes, we ought to offer them meaningful choice, not restrict them to courses of action that are want to leave them in financial ruin. 
Further on this point, it's important to remember that worker co-ops are ultimately an exercise in radical group collaboration, and as such demand especially novel group incentive schemes to overcome those problems inherent to collective action. As highlighted in our Cruz and Blasey 95 evidence, such incentive structures may need, quote, something akin to developing a corporate culture that emphasizes company spirit, promotes group cooperation, encourages social enforcement mechanisms. These kinds of group incentive schemes demand individual buy-in on a level unique from conventional firms. We should be seriously skeptical as to how the affirmative expects to get this kind of buy-in from workers who are forced into these modes of collective action as opposed to being offered the choice to pursue a career with the conventional firm. Next, it is absolutely fundamental that when evaluating the positive effects of worker co-ops, we understand how those positive impacts come about. Cruz and Blasey 95 tell us that the critical metric we should be looking at is perceived influence on the part of employees. When workers believe they have a say, they are more committed, more productive, and more satisfied. Interestingly, what's also made clear in these studies is that worker co-ops, while good at meeting this condition, do not create that perceived influence inherently. Cruz and Blasey find no inherent link between perceived influence and ownership stakes. Well, this seems counterintuitive at first, this actually makes sense due to what's referred as the one divided by N problem. As more, employees are, as more employees are hired, the stakeholder pool expands and individual influence within the corporation is diluted. Anyone who's voted in an especially populous district knows this problem. Besides showing us that worker co-ops don't de facto access their primary positive impact, this tells us that those positive traits are not exclusive to worker co-ops. There's no reason conventional firms can't create perceived influence among their employees. Anyone who's worked in management knows that the best firms go out of their way to ensure that their employees feel as though their voice matters. In-house focus groups can be made, surveys with transparent and prompt feedback, open forum board meetings. There are a plethora of ways for conventional firms to access these same positive impacts we associate with worker co-ops by making sure their employees feel heard. Finally, my partner cited Olson 13 as evidence for the utility conventional firms provide to worker co-ops as a means for mitigating the risks associated with the latter. I want to address any concerns regarding the likelihood of conventional firms willingly making that transition to a worker co-op, because it does seem kind of hard to understand. Both Olson 13 and Cruz and Blasey 95 reference current tax incentives that in the status quo have led to a significant increase in companies that feature employee stock ownership plans. This shows us that through intelligent policymaking, we have the tools to ensure some degree of an increased worker ownership in conventional firms. And there's no reason to believe that we can't hyper-target these same tax incentives to successfully encourage the transition of conventional firms to worker co-ops. This is important because it offers us a scenario where even if we believe worker co-ops are fundamentally preferable to conventional firms, the best way to ensure the creation and longevity of those co-ops is to maintain private firms and bend them to our interests. And this is not possible if we abolish private capital and move to a socialist economic model. Now I'm going to use um, the last like two and a half minutes I have, hopefully it won't take that long, to just quick do a line by line and address some of the concerns brought up by the socialist position so far. So with regard to Britain's speech, a lot of the complaints that were brought up here are not complaints that are inherent to capitalism. The flaws and problems are real, but 
if you can draw a clear causal line between problem ABC and capitalism to the economic model, that's really important and that needs to be explicitly done. I would love to see a citation for that. Um, and I think that we best kind of see where this might not be possible in something like COVID. Plenty of thoroughly capitalist nations absolutely killed it with their COVID response. So the idea that we can point to things like COVID or even things like unemployment and homelessness in a lot of these social problems we see today in America in say that these are causal inherent consequences of capitalism seems very strange to me, especially considering that we can look at other capitalist countries that seem to have addressed these problems far better. It seems to me like a lot of the criticisms here are policy problems. There are consequences of poor governance and failing policymakers, not any sort of problem inherent to the economic model that is capitalism. Um, uh, and I, I continuing on the COVID point, like to kind of illustrate even how this would manifest in America, I think it is blatantly obvious to like most people, I would hope that are anywhere near, like have been keeping up with like news cycles, that if Trump and McConnell were not in power, then the American COVID response would have been radically different, right? We had the experts, even the economists, I know that it was mentioned that uh, in America, the profit motive means that, oh, well, we're not gonna take the steps necessary to deal with things like COVID, but even economists were pretty unanimously saying, you have to take these lockdown actions. You have to start testing and doing contact tracing because in the long term, if we don't take actions, the consequences to our economy are going to be worse. So this idea that the profit motive pollutes our ability to respond to crises doesn't seem to bear out. Um, and the last thing I want to say is in response to America Johnson, when, when we talk about the power dynamics between employers and employees, we should remember that there are plenty of ways to mitigate that through things like ESOPs or through strong unions that are perfectly compatible with capitalist frameworks. And I think that's all I have. Thank you. Thank you so much, Splinters. And now we'll go ahead. That's a good segue into our open discussion. All right. Uh, there's a lot to dig into here. I want to thank uh, both of my opponents here. Um, I, I want to point a couple of things out uh, first off. And th there was a bunch that I wanted to address, but um, the capitalists that capitalists have done as well as Vietnam. Show me one capitalist country that has anything close to Vietnam's results. Vietnam. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, he's right, actually. No. Um, yeah, no, Vietnam, Vietnam is... is not capitalist. They've had some uh, capitalist reforms over the last however many years, but Vietnam is still a, social, a socialist nation, and EJ can go into that. Uh, yeah, directly. so I live in Vietnam, and I've actually lived through the COVID response here, and I'll say any of the countries that did do well, including capitalist nations, which I would agree are capitalist, like South, well, South Korea actually didn't do nearly as well as Vietnam, but I would say that New Zealand and Taiwan, uh, pretty close you know actually Vietnam i would throw australia in there too yeah australia did not do dearly as well as vietnam yeah. but anyway the, the the point i'm going to make is that uh the countries that did well in their responses are the countries that enacted socialistic policies that put human lives before capitalist profits okay yeah. so this is the deal that that that, that i think Brent is trying to explain when he when he says that it's socialism that aided the response in vietnam it's that socialistic policies such as, and I was living through this whole thing, 
Uh, I can attest to the fact that they shut down every non-essential business. And when I say non-essential in Da Nang, I mean, they shut down uh, restaurants. You couldn't even get food delivery from restaurants. The only places that were open were markets and grocery stores. You had to get a temperature scan when you came in. Um, they, you had to, uh, they would only let people go to the traditional markets five times per family per week. So they had very severe restrictions on capitalist profits. And yes, the tourism industry in Vietnam is dead right now as far as foreigners coming in. The only tourism right now is domestic. Um, and it does, of course, hurt capitalist profits a lot. However, Vietnam has been able to weather the storm uh, through socialistic policies. They have provided absolutely free testing and healthcare to everybody during the crisis, including foreigners. Uh, they've provided free and mandatory quarantine to anybody who may have been exposed. They've had great tracking and, and tracing programs. Uh, it is the, in the same, these same protocols, these same kind, styles of protocols were used in New Zealand and Taiwan, and that's why they are still doing very well as well. Anywhere you see success against COVID, it's because um, capitalist profits were not guiding the economy and they were not guiding the response and the political angle as well. The, the doctors and the people who actually know how to fight a crisis like this were put in charge and allowed to put the interests of human life and saving human life ahead of capitalist profits. And, and you yeah. see that in the, even the, the wonderful Nordic model countries that you're talking about did much, much, much worse than uh, Sweden Vietnam. tried to, yeah, yeah, Sweden Sweden tried to use, um, what was it called? Um, uh, herd immunity, which doesn't even work because you can get COVID twice. Um, right. They had a bunch of people die for no good reason whatsoever. Now, I will also point out that even in the case of Taiwan and New Zealand, they had a better response, uh, but also, and they saved lives, but their economies tanked, whereas the mm -hmm. Vietnamese economy grew in all of the quarters. Again, it's win-win because when you have an economy that is not that is not tied to profits that can still grow even if profits and speculative investment goes down you can weather crises like um covid you can do something about uh global warming the, the and vietnam has long-standing uh socialist programs that predate covid by far such as price control programs which make things like okay so the, one of the first things vietnam did when it's when covid started was they shut down rice production big deal for vietnam because one of vietnam's biggest exports is rice they're the, i think the second largest rice exporter in the entire world uh it's a big deal for them to shut down rice exports that's the first thing they did they've always had price controls on food staples food prices were totally 100 stable there was never a shortage there were never runs there was like one small run on grocery stores for a couple of hours until the government started uh providing free food to anybody who was under quarantine and show that they were going to support human life regardless of what happened. That run in the grocery stores lasted about two or three hours until they saw that policy come out. And that ended immediately. We never had any kinds of shortages as far as long the whole time I was, I've been here. And that's because from, the, from before COVID, these kinds of programs have been in place and healthcare has been available. 90% of Vietnamese people are uh, fully insured. 90% uh, of Vietnamese people own their own homes, so they haven't had to worry about paying rent uh, through the crisis, which is huge. So, We've got an eviction crisis because so many people rent. Plus um, a massive number of uh, workers co-ops in Vietnam, uh, especially agricultural workers co-ops. So the vast majority of agriculture in Vietnam is worker owned cooperatives and worker owned cooperatives are also one of the of the many many wonderful uh qualities we've been talking about of worker co-ops one of them is that during a crisis they're more likely to everybody agree to kind of reduce their wages instead of fire people and that's exactly what we saw in vietnam so a lot fewer farm jobs were lost in vietnam because of the resiliency of workers co-ops compared to other places in southeast asia which had a lot more layoffs and that sort of thing for for farm labor so 
I do have to say that from my experience, having lived through this crisis, having studied it a lot in, in terms of what Vietnam's response has been, it is socialistic policies. Even if you don't think that Vietnam itself is a socialist country or New Zealand and, and uh, Taiwan obviously are not socialist countries um, in terms of having workers on the means of production, they still had policies that did not allow capitalist profit motivations to guide society. And the last sentence I'll make is this. And a wider point is the one of the biggest problems I have with capitalism is simply that it allows all of human society to be harnessed to capitalist profit motivations. It doesn't do great things for things like the environment, even the best deal we've seen like the Green New Deal, uh, which has been signed off by some capitalists. It doesn't go nearly far enough in terms of stopping global climate change in time to avoid uh, complete uh, climate catastrophe. So we have to find better solutions to these problems that we're facing in the very near uh, term future. Can I jump uh, in with a couple points real quick? Sure. Yeah, go for it, Trent, and go for it. Yeah, yeah. so there's like, there's like a lot there. So I'm gonna go line by line just to put like something on each of them, but we can like drill in on whatever one we find the most interesting. So one thing that keeps happening here that I, I do not understand is why is it that when, when, when we point to the reasons why um, countries like Vietnam handle this crisis better or more resilient through it. When we actually look at the policies that allowed that to happen, none of these policies are in any way like tied to a specific economic model. We talk about the profit they, they are motive. Tied, but of, they're, they're incentivized uh, by the specific the economic, economic model puts society at the behest of capitalist profit motives. That's why the USA had like Hold no on. shutdown because capitalists completely run society. We're going to let Splinters just go ahead and finish. Okay, his... Sorry. No, go ahead. And then, and then. <laughs> sure. So yeah, I was, was going to try and address that too. So we can say that, well, the putting profits first is, you know, why these countries were incapable of like, responding in the way they should have. But the, the two, I guess like the two or three issues I have with that are that like one, we can go and we can look at major economic opinion, like the economic discourse among um, economists that are cited and ostensibly should be turned to when it comes to dictating American policy. And the pretty overwhelming consensus is that, hey, we need to take action now. It's better to hurt ourselves in the short term with like lockdowns and whatnot, um, rather than allow this virus to run rampant throughout our country for the next year and a half. Or additionally, you don't even have to talk about these lockdowns and our inability or unwillingness to do so if we had had adequate testing and contact tracing from the get-go after borders were closed. And that didn't happen 100% purely only because Donald Trump and Republicans in positions of power decided that they didn't want to do anything about it. There's no profit involved there. The government has the means, it has the funding to go out and to get people at airports and at the border, testing people and contact tracing those who test positive. There's no profit motive that even comes into play here. Um, the only way I could see this these decisions being tied to back to the economic model is if, and Brian kind of alluded to this, is if there's something about the economic model of socialism that inherently just places more value on human life, which sounds yes. like you guys are important, <laughs> but you need to you need to draw that distinction. I you don't have to demonstrate see, that. Yes, you need to yeah. demonstrate that. And I don't see how Through that is inherent in socialism. I see no reason why worker co-ops can't slash aren't in the now also driven by profit motives in their respective economies. Um, 
Yeah, I, sure. there's can, some other can, stuff, can I, but we can, can dive on that, that first. No, no, yeah, that's absolutely. good, because I, I would like to drill into that. And this was where I wanted to go anyway, so thank you for, for bringing that up. Okay, so here's the issue. There wasn't a profit motive directly, and you're right in the sense that like economists were saying, no, we have to shut down now or it will be worse in the long run. But that's the thing about capitalism. It can't think long-term like that. What's happening is, is that our, our industry is being driven by this class of investors, by the people who put their money into Wall Street. And what happened was, was that the people who had the uh, incentive, who had the ability to make those important policy decisions that would preserve human life and actually preserve the economy in the long run had no good incentive to do that, especially since they knew they were coming up on an election and they knew they would get voted out if the economy was bad. So what they wound up doing essentially was the worst of both worlds. They crashed the economy and then they put us into a, a uniquely bad situation. So yes, our leadership in, one in the United States, well, no, no, not just in the United States. We've seen this in just about every yeah. country in Europe. And the, the fact is, is that again, the COVID response has been garbage. It's uniquely garbage in the United States. But I would also argue that the leadership that we have in the United States is a direct result of capitalism and the profit motive, specifically Donald Trump because Donald Trump made a lot of money while he was on television, not for himself, because he's a terrible businessman, but he made a lot of money for the networks that they continuously covered him because he said a number of horrible things. And as the media zoomed in on him and gave him billions and billions of dollars of free coverage, he just got more and more popular and bam, you have a freaking psychopath in the, in the White House with holes in his brain. Well, yeah, but also Biden is not is, is has already said that he's going to veto universal health care if it comes across his desk. He's not going to have shutdowns. He's not going to shut down the economy. He's going to shut down the virus is what he says. Yeah, he hasn't given anything possible. in his plan that indicates he's going to do anything that will meaningfully contain COVID. So I don't think this is just a Trump problem. And I also don't think it's just a USA problem. I think that the burden of evidence is really very much on the the capitalist, the pro-capitalist side here in terms of looking at the whole planet and seeing that the, the overwhelming vast majority of countries with capitalist economies, which is the overwhelmingly vast majority of countries, have done a very, very bad job. And it's absurdly naive to me to say that, oh, capitalist profit motives and capitalist interests don't dominate the uh, politics in these countries. I mean, if you just look at the USA alone, uh, the way that lobbying works, the way that bills get written, the way that all of our... Um, non-corporate uh, advisors have been gutted back, back when Newt Gingrich uh, defunded the Senate and House. So they got rid of all of the advisors and replaced them with lobbyists. I mean, if you know anything about how the system works in the USA, you know that capitalist interests have dominating power over and you can look at it in the way that uh, in the outcomes of legislation as well. You know that wealthy people have much more impact on uh, legislation and on politicians than working class people. So I really do think the burden of evidence here is uh, on the opposing side to show that capitalism can handle COVID because overwhelmingly it did not. And in the cases where it did, it was only where they had strong policies that did not allow capitalist interest because capitalists want to keep their businesses running. Okay, they don't want to shut down their businesses. They don't want to pay their employees uh, extra money for paid. They don't want to invest in PPE. They proved that. They demonstrated it very, very, very soundly during during the non-response. And, and that we even had. if they're nice and they wanted to actually do that, they are economically disincentivized to do it by the system that we have. We punish them for helping their employees in much the same way. And again, all of this goes down to that problem of putting profits first economically. It doesn't necessarily mean that our leaders are people who sit there and rub their hands together and say, ha ha ha, ha how many people can I kill today to, to become wealthy? Very few people are like that. I mean, Leopold II of Belgium was like that. But, you know, uh, besides 
that, like that's that's rarely happens. It's like capitalism. It, it's like it's an algorithm that is set to select leaders within our society, and the algorithm has been set to select the cleverest and most amoral people and to elevate them. Oh, and so, I just want to. I just. I just I really. I need to correct one quick thing. I want to get Lane to go for it yeah. real quick. Cause it's a talking point I hear all the time and it's super out of context and not true. The whole Biden said he was going to veto healthcare. He, that, ex, that entire quote, he explicitly said he would veto healthcare if Democrats put it across his desk without any funding attached to it. That that yeah. is very different from Biden was not going to buy universal healthcare. Okay, I mean, go but ahead. he, no, but he campaigned. He campaigned against universal healthcare. He specifically yeah, that's absurd. like when I, I, just, really, I, I think we should yeah. really just stick on. Mm-hmm. Let's just focus yeah. on the capitalism socialism <laughs> part <laughs> of the Don't go yelling about Biden. Okay, fair. Yeah, enough. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Biden's... my whole point was just that I don't think Biden would do a better job than Trump. Uh, sure, meaningful. Sure. I would agree. In okay, fact, I might even say that if I, Hillary had won okay. in 2016, we might not have gotten the um, now this is speculation on my part, but the actual bailout, I think, might not have happened. I, I would be very surprised to see the bailout that came to the American people come through anybody. The only reason Trump did it was he just does whatever and they thought it would be popular All right, take it away lemon yeah 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 i just i just wanted to say like i just think we're there are so many points that were just said that i don't think i could possibly respond <laughs> like yeah. n- not gish gallop, but yeah choose whatever you want to focus on i mean yeah, well, yeah, yeah i just i just yeah just okay so there was something that came up a very very long time ago um where we point we're, we're pointing to like vietnam as like a socialist society so first of all like i don't know how you measure whether or not a society is a socialist society outside of like the worker co-op model. And I I looked into this out of the like 500,000 ish businesses in Vietnam, only like 25 K of them are worker co-ops. It's less than 1% of businesses are worker co-ops. It doesn't seem like, it doesn't really seem like much of a socialist society to me. Plus like, from what I understand too, like there's still like some kind of like private health insurance in Vietnam. Like they cover the absolute poorest 100% and then like 80% for like the, the average like middle-class person, then 30% for like farmers and fishermen. So EJ, it, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like a, like a socialist society to me. So it's weird that we can go to this as an example. The workers co-op numbers are off um, quite significantly. There are millions of workers co-op, uh, workers, that work for co-ops in Vietnam. I'll get the exact number in a second here. But um, as far as the way the insurance is structured, yeah, I don't think it's ideal, but it is, uh, it's a lot better than what they have in the USA, at least, which is a very, very low bar. But, but yeah, my point um, is that it's not socialism. 90% of uh, Vietnamese people are fully insured, though, is, is I think yeah. it's important. I mean, it is socialism in and, the sense that, you know, for one thing, what I've said is profits are not in command of the economy. The economy is not structured around a way that the only way that it grows is through speculative investment for profit. It feels, like, But it feels like now we're changing the definition of socialism to something so that we didn't I, agree I upon. Wanna, I'll grant you the point. That, okay, right. that, that right. the, at least for me, I can't speak for Brenton, but for me, Vietnam is not the ideal society, and it's not the kind of society that I would want. You know, no, I'd agree. That, that's that's not. It, it's 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 perhaps the best we have right now. Um, in my experience, it's the best place I've lived in terms of you know having more socialism versus more capitalism influencing society. But no, I think that you need to completely eliminate capital and build uh, workers owned. I workers mean, need to own the means of production within a socialist society, which is why I think uh, just just to go back to the point, maybe this is a good thing for us to focus on for a bit, because I think this gets it's like more it's too. like banned. It's like like the, you're, like you're not allowed to have independent unions in Vietnam, to my knowledge. There's like one state, like one legal state led like trade union. It's a well, like 90 percent of worker strikes in Vietnam are done outside of 
the official union, their wildcat strikes, and there's never been an instance of Vietnam's government punishing people for having those wildcat strikes. So oh. I, in, in the USA, all workers' unions also need to be registered with the Board of Labor. So, I mean, if you want to do a, a comparison, it's, it's pretty much a, a standard practice for unions to have to register with governments. I'm an anarchist, so I'm opposed to the state, so I don't think that's great. So I'm not going to sit here and say that that's the best system. But I will say that that well, fact that 90% of strikes in Vietnam are wildcat strikes and that are not punished by the government, I think that would say that there is some uh, worker this organization. Just, this just, that this is just not doesn't seem like this. Just this just you're looking at the paper, like... but I'm looking at what's actually happening in practice. So on paper, yes, all well, personal experience organization aren't is, is associated. It's not just personal experience. Like, He's I don't about no, ninety percent. You look it up. Ninety percent of strikes in Vietnam are wildcat strikes that have that go outside of the the official union structure. Yeah, I mean, so there is an organization here that is not assigned, affiliated with the state. But regardless, just, like, most my of it point, is. But like my point, though, is that it, this doesn't seem like a socialist society with the definition that we agreed upon, which is worker ownership of the means of production. There's like, right, okay, well, I'm not arguing that Vietnam is the best society. I'm arguing that let I'm him, not let saying it's only point. Okay, let him finish his point. I'm not. I'm not saying it's the. I'm not saying that you think it's the best society. That's not the point that I'm making. The point that I'm making. Is that it's okay, not I just found out that last year, by the way, I just want to interject this. Last year, Vietnam passed a law that you can have independent unions. Okay. Oh, they did? Okay, well, that's cool. Um, awesome. Uh, regardless, I mean, the point is that my point is that it's not a society where the, the workers collectively own the means of production. No, like we agree to I'm arguing for. I mean, we could say, okay, so this is, again, when we're working with real world examples of like what is a socialist society and what is not and what can be judged to be more significantly socialist than others, Vietnam is the most socialist society that we can probably point to or among the most Maybe Cuba. societies. Yeah. Cuba I just want to say I don't like the framing here. And I think it's unfair that we're sitting here having to say that defend Vietnam when it's not the, it's not, a, as you're saying, it's not a purely socialist society. We're advocating for a purely socialist society. And there's not this expectation that the capitalists have to you know like defend like a purely America, capitalist like the usa society. or norway norway has plenty of problems and norway by the way the the, the big uh norway and sweden these nordic model countries they uh export their suffering through international imperialist capitalism and if you just look at during the covid response there the sweden the sweden's ikea factories uh, had horrible, atrocious uh, working conditions. Uh, look at the factory for IKEA in Russia. It was one of the worst outbreaks at the beginning, and, and IKEA's corporate structure did absolutely nothing to help their migrant workers that lived there. Mm -hmm. So the fact that these Nordic models might look great on paper just means that they're exporting their suffering to factory nations, and I'd love to see how well they do if they don't have those factory nations to produce everything for them. If you only care about the workers in your own country, and you don't care about the people that are suffering in the countries that make the shit that you buy and use, then I, I find that to be, uh, I don't know, not a very strong uh, Terrifyingly short-sighted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is actually like a really interesting point, right? Because when we talk about like exporting, like suffering, um, as far as like having, you know, exporting the manufacturing of a lot of these goods to like other countries, um, we like to, when we have this conversation, it often does come up this point that you brought up where you know, the conditions that these people are working are like terrible and whatnot. So something I think that's important to remember, as unfortunate as it is, is that absent, um, you know, if, if, for example, if America practiced a much more protectionist uh, trade policy, then that manufacturing would be taking place here. That does not mean that the workers, like these children in like Chinese sweatshops or something, are now, you know, in these like beautiful like luxury jobs. That just means that they're, instead of working, you know, in a sweatshop, they are working in a 
field for less pay in worse conditions, right? Hang so on. The, I mean, the, the the say, there's a second part to this. There's a second part to this that I want to get to, right? And then yeah. feel free to tear it all apart. Um, so like, I think it, it's important to remember that like these free trade deals like happen for a reason. And that oftentimes the way this cycle works is it kind of passes the buck where um, less developed nations oftentimes act as the manufacturing basis for more developed nations. And that leads to an increase in average wealth and income for those people. And as people's income and wealth increases, they are they get more negotiating power. They're able to argue for better labor protections. And then that makes the cost of labor there more are you using the IMF uh, and it kind of it, it yeah, goes this is, around. This is the Steven the Pinker bull. Are, are you using the international <laughs> poverty line from the IMF uh, for to, for to get those numbers? For which the World Bank. I'm sorry, the World Bank international poverty line. Is that what you're uh, basing that lifting people out of poverty stuff on? Are you asking for like like which numbers? I guess am I? I'm, yeah, I'm not because I, mean, I, I don't believe I, I have I have data that conflicts with the fa- the idea that capitalism lifts people in imperialized or what as you say developing countries out of poverty i don't think that that's true at all and i sure, think yeah if you can like drop that in chat or something i love to look it over um well, the, the second part of that that i wanted to mention mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. one of the other nice things about this is that when we export our manufacturing through these trade deals that actually allows us to be in a position to negotiate for better labor t- t- protections for those people. That's something should, that Obama that. in America w- was doing under the TPP before everybody lost their mind I mean, about it and pulled out. So like we kind of can use this interdependency. Do you think the USA is a great uh, platform for enacting global change? I mean, what the track Absolutely. record Absolutely, we have so much hegemony. <laughs> we do we have so much power and we have yeah but look at what we do with it we, yeah. we bomb hospitals we don't improve labor conditions for people that's a, we that's up a labor conditions fascist were government in, the, in chile labor <laughs> conditions were in the tpp we negotiated the paris climate of course we negotiated the iran deal we use our hegemony for good things all the time I, so you're I just arguing say, for imperialism yeah. <laughs> and when it gets undone, it's not because of capitalism. It's because bad people get put in office. People but capitalism see. puts those think, bad people think... in office because it rewards the exact kind of I don't, bad I don't, people. I, don't okay. I have a question about that. I then. think we so, kind of okay. Go on. Is the argument yeah. here that so, so is his response here that any time that I point to a, a policymaker making a bad decision, um, that is still evidence of capitalism failing because policymakers only get in office off the back of support from capitalists like no no the the, the issue the issue is is that capitalism uh capitalist businesses are treated as a proving ground they're treated as a way to select our leaders and ways to uh, it's an intelligence system essentially that's how markets work the problem is a couple of things one markets are inherently biased towards previous actors within those markets which is why for instance swarm technology was able to outperform both experts and markets the markets being the biggest odds and properly predict uh the uh winner of the kentucky derby and you guys can look that up it's freaking fascinating because it's a way of aggregating uh human intelligence in such a way that the people become smarter than the uh than the sum of their parts and i actually think this could be really heavily used in a future socialist society. But the point being is, is that first of all, you've got the snowball effect of power. As you are successful within the market, you gain more power and you gain a higher profile. And eventually you get up to the point where you can run for office successfully and win usually. Now there are other ways to do this. Uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, great example, you know, and I actually met her in New York City we, before she was famous. Uh, she was my bartender and we talked about Occupy, She's super smart. But, but that's rare. 
the point is is that overall the system will select for like as if it were an algorithm like you know how youtube has the algorithm that selects the specific videos that are then delivered to people and similarly the capitalist algorithm selects specific people and puts them into positions of power and what it uses to select for those people is oftentimes a high degree of amorality and usually, not always, because Donald Trump is not a clever individual, but usually they tend to be very clever and smart. So basically, it's like you took an algorithm and you said, I want to give power to people that don't care about ethics, and I want to give power to people that um, uh, that are really, really smart. This is going to work out great. And boom, you run into situations where, for instance, uh, psychopaths make up maybe 1% of the uh, U.S. population, but 10% of Wall Street. Um, and similarly, Wall Street is not U.S. policymakers. Yes, it is. That's <laughs> the point. Hold on. I don't yeah. like this framing the again. The, 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 this framing is that like we need to have like this imperialist relationship with other countries mm -hmm. so that the U.S. state hegemony can go out and uh, I don't think we and influence labor. But what? The, but the the, the, the factories that are being owned by companies like Foxconn, they're being commissioned by companies like Apple. They're being owned by capitalists. Why? If capitalism is so great, why don't the capitalists improve the workers' conditions? Yeah. I don't think people will be jumping off of buildings if they own their own labor and they own, collectively own those factories themselves. So why is it like this complex liberal imperialist structure where we have to, which never happens. There's all these, there's this whole NGO uh, industrial complex that says that they're doing all this work, but it doesn't happen. Uh, people are not being lifted out of poverty. They are jumping off of the rooftops of buildings that are tied directly to American capitalists that don't do anything to improve those workers' conditions. Why don't, what, like if capitalism is so great and it's so great for one person to own this massive or one small group of shareholders to own this massive, massive corporation, why don't they improve the working conditions for their own workers? Why do we need this big complicated imperialist machine? Why don't the capitalists just make Good working conditions for the workers if that's the greatest structure for how to structure a business entity it's just yeah. it's a weird framing to me i don't it's, think it's I don't, the, the, the issue with, with wall street by the way i'm sorry okay, i'm sorry yeah. um th there is a question so i just want to give um, splinters and layman a, a chance to respond to that all you layman. And then we'll get right back to you yeah i just i just i don't I, d I don't think it's fair to like sort of straw man us to being like, oh, we're like pro this whole ruling elite that wants people that's like, okay, with people dying and stuff. Like, I don't think Tretton and I. So how any, do you like, have capitalism intrinsic... without that, without eight people owning 50% of the wealth? Like, give me your vision. for 50% oh, of the wealth. I don't know. You, taxes. And then you put those taxes back into social programs. How do you make that happen? Through policies. That have been okay, done so in many countries. Yeah, but when you are Layman, the problem, as a businessman, yeah, the problem here is that they're, uh, and I think as Brenton like showed us that they seem to believe that like the private, the private world, like some algorithm in the private world selects for all U.S. policymakers and not like U.S. It, electoralism. It's not. It, <laughs> yeah, it's not. Well, the dude, case look at, at all. yeah. No, seriously. Also, the, the United States the is US not a democracy. Too, right? It's an oligarchy. It's been rated as that as specifically, and the interests of politicians and the wealthy are weighted far more than the interests of the voter. Okay, but we're talking about. We, but there's other capitalist countries that you can point to, right? Like, uh, we're not like, I don't think Trent yeah, and I are and like stands of the USA. Like, Sure. But but all the other capitalist countries have the same problem in that they concentrate a great deal of power and control and the ability to rewrite the rules and to change policy in the hands of very few people. And the more these people are removed from society and the more they are raised to the highest levels of power, the more disconnected they become from the rest of society. And even if they aren't evil, they just don't understand. And as 
as a result, horrible things happen. And I just yeah, like, like I mean, great, like, great example. Do you think that everyone who invested in the uh, British East India Company was a monster that if they had if they'd gone to India and they'd seen 10% of the subcontinent dying in a single year as a direct result, do you think that they would have continued to support that? No, I, I, but they didn't. They were removed okay. from the situation. Yeah, I just I just don't know anything about the East India Company, so I can't really <laughs> do speak to that. But yeah, I, look up. It's yeah, called the like, Age of Her the, It's called the Age of Heroic Commerce. There's a there's a great okay. podcast if you don't want to read the book. Okay, my problem is that like like we're attributing like all of these problems to capitalism, right? And, but I'm hearing a lot of mm -hmm. capitalism is bad, but I'm not hearing a lot of socialism is a good prescription. And then if socialism mm -hmm. solves all of these problems. Going back to what I said earlier, like I need an experiment of a worker-owned society. How can we make it? That's a that's a yeah, that's not an argument. Experiment. I'm sorry, but the the fact of the matter is, you're no, saying like a lot of your asking, arguments against worker co-ops. I wasn't co -ops. trying to make an argument. I was just asking well, okay. for like an experiment. That's all. No, no, like you because you can share all the numbers about workers' cooperatives that show how great they are. Yes, but so, as we but as we said before, like these are these are co-ops that have to start privately owned, and then that transition, right? Yes. Yeah. Right. So, but here's but that's what all the right? data is on but now. Literally, if you think, literally every wait, every single wait. socialist, anarchist, Marxist—they all say that socialism must grow out of capitalism. You can't spring into socialism from nowhere. No, but what is we saying, expropriate these factories? Can I jump in for like two seconds? Yeah, Go sure. for it, okay. So, yeah. like Ryan, mm -hmm. Inija, I I totally understand how goddamn infuriating it is where we're sitting here asking, like, give us the experiment. And we all know that like the perfect, so the perfect social, socialist like countries never existed, right? So this is like very, very, very difficult for you. I like- in, Perfect country period hasn't existed. Right, this exactly. In the development. Um, I don't want a perfect country. But like, I, you do, you have to understand, and I try to get at this in my, my like framework <laughs> argument in my opener, that when we look at something, and I suppose we, like we would disagree on this, but at least for us capitalists, right? For us capitalists, we look at the world and it seems like capitalism, despite its failings, especially in certain iterations like the American iteration, it seems to have worked relatively well compared to alternatives that have been tried. So if you are trying to tell us to like, listen, you need to abandon this, we have a better option. Like, yeah. man, there, there's like a high bar to like convince capitalists of that change that I feel like has to be met. Existential and, threat to the human asking. race. I, I, I really have, I have two points. These are questions yeah. that I would like to have answered by the opposition. So, cause I think we do, we have talked a lot and I think it's fair, I, but I have questions that I'd like answered. So first of all, these experiments that you want to exist to show that socialism works, why doesn't capitalism allow them to take place? Why, when Vietnam decided they wanted to become socialist and the overwhelming number of Vietnamese people supported Ho Chi Minh, why did the Viet why did the Americans come in and support a puppet government that guillotined thousands of people, had a very fascistic rule over South Vietnam? Why, when Allende was legally and democratically elected into office in Chile, did the USA install Pinochet to become a ruthless fascist dictator there? Why does the CIA coup uh, countries around the world whenever they start to dabble in socialism? Why do we uh, embargo, put these severe embargo restrictions on places like Cuba and Vietnam? Why don't you just allow these experiments to flourish? And, and the reason is because they're afraid that they might succeed. And they're afraid that they, like when Allende was in power, he was succeeding and making Chile a much better country, which Pinochet immediately rolled all that back with the Chicago boys and that neoliberal hegemony that came from liberals in the USA. So that, so why don't those experiments, why aren't they allowed to flourish under capitalism uh, with, yeah, with this capitalist hegemony around the world? The and my second method. question is, my second question is, can you show me a capitalist country that works 
<laughs> Can you show me a capitalist country that works for everybody in the supply chain? Okay, so even in the Nordic country, do they 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 severely oppress people in their factory nations? So why don't I would like to see your experiment where capitalism benefits everybody in society? Everybody is taken care of. Everybody has their material needs met. I just so wanted, I, I think that that same experiment, it, you have the same burden of evidence for the experiment, if that's so, such I, an important. I, yeah, I just, I just want to clarify, like when I'm asking for an experiment, I'm not asking for it to be like a perfect 100%, every single thing is accounted for. Everybody no, I know, is, but, like, but there hasn't happy. even been a chance what I mean because is, of the way that- No, I know. So, well, I mean, I can only go off of what the data presents me, right? Like, I don't like to make very vague inferences to like, well, it might be this, it might be this. When I'm looking at the data on worker co-ops, the success rates from them come from not them starting as worker co-ops from the get-go, but from them transitioning into them after they register as a private traditional firm first. And that's why I'm sort of skeptical of this. And I think that might be why some, for example, like I hear a claim a lot from people like Richard Wolf, where banks sort of have a sort of bias towards like a private ownership versus a worker ownership for like like ideological reasons investors too oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. so like going back to the data i think that's because the data seems to suggest that it's better if they start off as that and then transition into it versus them starting off right away so if you wanted to start a business you could start a business but then transition into a co-op later and i think that well, as a might capitalist well i think okay, that might yeah i'm just saying i think that might be a, 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 re, a potential explanation why that's at least backed by data. That's as much as I can know. And I just want to clarify once again, I don't intrinsically defend private ownership. Like obviously I'm in favor of some some forms of decommodification here and there if we can demonstrate that it's good. I'm not a researcher, like I can't go in and implement these models. I'm not a policymaker, like I'm just an average guy. So like I just have, I'd have to go off of this. As well? so. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so like, like answer question one, uh, and this is, I don't want to take us down the electoral, electoralism rabbit hole, but as you ask, you know, why is this, has the U S engaged in all of these, um, I would agree, like pretty, pretty bad Horrifying foreign interventions. Yeah. yeah. Um, like the unironic answer to that is that U S the U S voting population is small and uniquely uninformed and apathetic towards foreign policy. And we do not evaluate our policymakers and public office candidates based on their their, their beliefs about foreign policy. That That is the reason why this stuff happens. It's because these and, and people why don't get like held that? accountable. And why are they like that? For a myriad of reasons. Because it, most predominantly be probably because like the education system is like woefully underfunded in the United States. Yeah, and why is it woefully underfunded? Because, the, because education system, system, it's, it's a yeah. it's a feedback cycle. Exactly. It's a right. Feed, it's a negative feedback cycle. So right. what you've got essentially here is you've got a, the U.S. is uniquely a garbage fire in this in this regard, mm -hmm. because the nitwits with wooden teeth who thought like, you know, bloodletting would cure them were the ones that built our system. And they were deeply afraid of people having real power. These were a bunch of rich idiots uh, who came from England, the aristocrats that wanted to be the new nobility and the new world. Those are the people that created our hallowed constitution. They created the state religion that we all have to live in called capitalism. And, uh, you know, I mean, capitalism predated that, but I'm talking specifically about like American society and how it relates to capitalism and economics uh, and economics. So you've got stuff like, for instance, people in the United States 
you know, not voting very particularly well or being particularly intelligent or being particularly educated, but that is by design. Because again, the people that are actually hold the levers of power don't want us to be educated. They don't want us to be able to think critically. Um, Noam Chomsky talks about this. If you watch Manufacturing Consent, they actually view Americans taking democratic, like, like, masses of Americans voting, they view that as a crisis of democracy because they think we're all idiots and that they're the only ones that can run this. I don't even necessarily disagree with that. The mm -hmm. problem is that you can't draw the, the these this disenfranchisement by design talking points. You cannot connect these to the economic model of capitalism sure. when we yeah, have capitalist okay. nations so, that so, have gone okay. out of their oh, way let to enfranchise their, okay. their voting sorry, population. Right? I'm sorry. We can go look at mandated voting in Australia, right? We can mm -hmm. look at capitalist nations that go out of their way to enfranchise their population, <laughs> that go out of their way to educate their population, that yeah. top mm -hmm. the charts in terms of-, of Certainly, this. and again, I'm saying the United States is in a uniquely garbage right. position here. Um, but these problems are still inherent in Australia. They're still inherent in I, any of these capitalist nations because what they do is the, the system winds up because markets are biased towards previous actors within markets, it tends to uh, bring the, the the power to a specific pinnacle of a few, you know, hundred. Well, or I, I think I have a more simple. I think I could cut closer to the quick here, maybe because the economic model of capitalist owning production is is the model under which these workers are being treated like shit. The capitalists <laughs> are the one treating the workers like shit. I don't understand. Like we don't have to build a big uh, justification for the electoral problem. Blah, 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 blah. The capitalists treat their workers like shit. That, that, that's what's happening. I mean, they're, they're people are jumping off the buildings because the capitalists who own the companies are treating them like shit. So why do we have to go through and prove all this stuff about electoralism and all this stuff whenever, quite frankly, if the capitalists owning the means of production is great, then why don't they treat their employees well? Because I mean, there's the, 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 the most because, direct evidence I can think of. Because, because, when we're, because when we're prescribing problems to society, we also have to be able to bring solutions to that. And we have to be yeah. able to demonstrate okay. these solutions. All right, so that's I, I want to go back to the problem with this. Your experiment. Like, can... Hold on, mm -hmm. let, let Lehman finish sorry, his point. Uh, there wasn't really much. It's just like, it just seems like we attribute like a lot of problems to capitalism, but then there are solutions to that. There's like a bunch of solutions to problems like like income inequality and all this stuff that yeah. like you can solve There's through solutions. like policies and stuff like exactly. that. I don't know why we have to completely infer causality. There are, the there are easy the solutions. Burden to, of evidence, yeah. There are easily solutions to all of these problems. And you're right. You, there's not the same burden of evidence going on here. I, I actually talked about that. We have plenty of food. We could give it to the uh, hungry people. We have more than enough housing. We could give it to all the homeless people, but we won't because the economic system disincentivizes that. It only incentivizes activity, which is profitable. Any activity that is not profitable has to be either handled through charity, which is never enough to actually support it. It's a Band-Aid on a gushing wound, or the people who engage in that activity have to take a major risk to their life and limb and the safety of themselves and those that they love to do something that is not profitable. Do you so guys again, think, do you it, guys? Mm -hmm. Sorry, go on. Yeah, it's more profitable to leave 40% of the food to rot than to give it to hungry people, even though it is more socially desirable to give it to the hungry people. And this is because the hungry people cannot pay for it. And there is no other way that they have found as of yet to generate a profit by feeding those hungry people who can't pay. It just sounds like we're kind of viewing this as though we can either like, like private ownership, societies that are capitalist aren't homogenous 
insofar as their market deregulation goes for these things. Like we have social security that spans across a spectrum, across capitalist societies that have been able to deal with problems like homelessness and stuff like that. Like, again, like if you I look mean, at places yeah. like Finland, Finland is a capitalist society. And the, Finland, the state, is all, Finland has like yeah. nobody on their streets now almost. Yeah, well, well, the Nordic countries are very good at that. And that's a big part of their their culture. Like if you look at Iceland in like the year 1200, they, they had more aggressive welfare laws in Iceland in like the year 1200 than we have in the United States right oh, now. And it's because six months of darkness uh, so they have a huge issue with depression as a result of how of that darkness. And also it gets so cold, you've got a bunch of homeless sickles on the street if you don't deal with that. So they know the cost of leaving these people to die. The Americans don't know the cost of leaving these people to die because it takes longer and we've got a larger country and they get shipped off to California. But we're not um, just talking about capital. But we're not just talking about America. We're talking about capitalism. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, the fact That's is, is that to... the, the, so there are certain societies that have higher levels. Like the state can be used to mitigate the market failures of capitalism. The problem is, is that you have this inherent contradiction between the power that is vested in the capitalist class and the state, uh, and the state that goes goes out of its way to. Um, uh, mitigate these problems. So the people that have all the power have a disincentive to solve the problems unless those problems then impact their profits or their quality of life. So again- How do you think a policymaker wins slash keeps their seat? Wins slash keeps their seat? Yes. As soon as a politician gets that... elected, they start fundraising. That's the answer. Yeah. Right? Why do you- and That's what they spend most of their time why do you think they're fundraising? Where do you, where do you think because, that money is used Because for? you have to buy your seat in office yeah. in most capitalist countries. What do you mean by buy your seat? It, it, well, I used to work in campaign mar uh, marketing, essentially, in, in campaign communications, and it cost a shitload of money to get somebody elected. And one of the biggest indicators of who will win, like in a local election, is who spends the most money on things like robocalls, television advertising, street uh -huh. signs. That's what gets people elected under a yeah. capitalist agenda. Right. You have so, to build an institution to push yourself into power, essentially. You need, and that's, and that's only getting worse with things people. like super PACs. Yeah. The common thread here to keep in mind is that this money goes ultimately towards getting votes, towards getting exposure, towards yeah. getting people aware of the politicians and invested in their idea, right? So mm -hmm. when we talk about whatever influence like corporations um, may play in getting like somebody elected and into office, Ultimately, the power here is not residing with the corporation. It's residing with the, the electorate because that money is being put towards getting votes. This but you just pointed out that the electorate is ignorant and purposefully kept ignorant and purposefully fooled by these advertising campaigns. They're playing both sides. So Soft power is power. And to, to deny that is, is to me absurd because I worked in marketing for so long and that was basically my bread and butter was applying soft power and propaganda to people to make them buy soap or what the fuck ever. So to say that soft power is not a form of power to me is absurd. And to say that money is not a form of soft power within the capitalist hegemony, within the capitalist imperialist framework is to me absurd. So, and then that, that begs the question, is it okay for capitalists to accumulate so much wealth that eight individuals own half of the world's wealth? And if that's not okay, how do you have a system of capitalism in which you can distribute things much, much more equitably. And at that point, if you're redistributing wealth on such a massive scale, why not have democracy in the workplace? And what is your argument against democracy in the workplace? If you want democracy to control who gets to 
own nuclear missiles or who gets to send soldiers off to die in a war. You want democracy there with the state. Why don't you want democracy at the place where you spend? We never said we don't want day? democracy in the workplace. The yeah. opposition is that it is twofold. It's that one. What's this debate about again? So, so it's <laughs> no, it's that one worker co-ops like can absolutely work in certain industries but that they primarily they aren't really feasible in capital intensive industries and in all industries it is beneficial for worker co-ops to form out of a conventional firm transitioning right so the argument here this is, is such a weirdly specific thing fine, well, but that yeah, we because that's how economists have to study these different yes. things but and how we have to measure all these see, different okay. things hold on all right, let Splinter right. finish his point. In. Yeah, sorry. Ultimately, it's just like worker co-ops work fine in certain areas. They don't work fine in other areas, such that ultimately it's not a good idea to abolish like private ownership of capital. You need to have some level of private ownership of capital here. You need to allow conventional firms to exist to some meaningful degree in order to deal with capital intensive industries and to help um, worker co-ops in non-capital intensive industries have the greatest chance of like succeeding and surviving. Okay, I think I can. Okay, I'm not an here. economist, but I'm a I'm a former business person, and I have run many businesses, and I I know that the main reason businesses fail is undercapitalization. You don't have enough money to start your business. You need at least enough money. Most people say to run your business for six months at a loss. That's a shitload of money. Okay, that's why the average small business that has any hope of succeeding in the USA requires at least thirty thousand dollars in startup, which is a significant amount of money for most workers. Now, the fact that you're saying that these privately uh, capitalized firms that then turn into co-ops work better in these capital and uh, heavy industries that is like uh, that's like saying like okay we have this greenhouse where we have potatoes and tomatoes and we're watering the potatoes but not the tomatoes therefore we know that potatoes grow better so potatoes are better like that doesn't make any sense we're not arguing just for cooperative own businesses within capitalism, because I know as a former business owner that most co-ops are not going to be able to start up with these capital intensive industries because you're not going to be able to find 50 workers that can raise enough capital to support a business that's going to support 50 workers in the first year under capitalism. That's why we as communists and anarchists advocate for seizing the capital and seizing the means of production yeah. directly from capitalists. And if you want to just, it, regardless of whether or not you think that that's moral or whatever, um, do you not agree that like if we could somehow just transfer the billions and billions of dollars from those eight people that own 50% of the wealth into workers' cooperatives, would that not perhaps, from an economic standpoint, solve this problem of undercapitalization? And if not, why not? My position is I don't know. My position isn't yes or no, because it, I, again, this is why this is why I'm asking for like, this is why like we're sort of, so, it feels like okay. we're pushing. I, yeah, you want the I think we either have a concession or a crack at that question. Can I take a crack at that question? Yeah, go for it. And, go. and then yeah, I have a- So like, it is absolutely, I mean, well, Technically, you're right. Yeah. If we were to seize all of this capital and like give it to any worker co-op that wanted to start, that would solve the undercapitalization problem here. The problem you run into now is you're operating like you're foregoing markets and operating under a command economy because the, the state now has you're to decide. To, no, you're talking to two anarchists. Neither of us are are, are suggesting we abolish private property then in the state. Neither of us who are is going to but then how are you deciding then which worker co-ops? get these resources that you've now the workers just seize their own workplace if you yeah. work at mcdonald's you're Mc, you're a mcdonald's owner now then yeah. and, then, and then you build and of how our new worker co-ops supposed to capitalize themselves because we're talking about you don't uh, need to capitalize radically changing society of a capitalist thing you're, you're you're essentially asking what you're saying is is like show up show us how socialism grows out of capitalism exponentially by playing by the rules of capitalism that were written by capitalists 
capitalism will never abolish itself like that it's ridiculous now the the thing is is that what i want you guys to look at and you've talked about an experiment that you want to see and there's a lot of really great things to see i would recommend looking into the history of the spanish anarchists during the spanish civil war particularly the first three years um where the entire city of barcelona was collectivized and run on an anarcho-syndicalist model not only did were they responsible for the only civilian defeat of a modern mechanized military force in human history but again it resulted in a huge economic boom and continued until they were sadly betrayed by the bolsheviks and um then the bolsheviks you know went around to promptly losing the war. You can also take a look at, uh, there's a great documentary by Naomi Klein called The Take. And this is one of the things that convinced me to be an anarchist. And this is, you can look into the recovered, the recovered factories movement in Argentina, um, where a crisis of capitalism, and I won't get into it too much for this debate, led to the government freezing all of their resources because the capitalist owners were saying, these factories, these businesses are not profitable. So we're going to shut them down, put everybody out of work, and we're going to sell them off for parts. And what happened was the workers instead said, we've got families to feed. They broke into the factories. They ran it themselves with no bosses, and it worked great. And the capitalists were unable to regain control of those factories. Again, what we're talking about here, when we talk about expropriation, we're talking about getting into a position where the state will no longer defend Jeff Bezos's claim of ownership over Amazon. What happens when the state doesn't defend that? What happens when Jeff Bezos goes to Amazon and says, hey, Amazon, give me my money uh, since, I, since I own this. And everybody at Amazon goes, oh, Jeff, you know, I think we've given you a lot of money and uh, we don't really like you that much and you're not really doing a lot around here. So uh, screw off. We're just going to do what we want with it. And Jeff Bezos, under our laws now, Jeff Bezos could go, oh, I'm going to go get the police. I'm going to throw these people out. No, let's imagine that the police, for whatever reason, aren't deployed, either because they do not exist, anarchist, or because the, the state decides that it's not going to uh, enforce that ownership. Right there, the property naturally falls directly into the hands of the people who already have it, who already possess it. You know, that's what one of the ways that we can see this moving from capitalism to socialism. There are a number of other ways, and there's uh, there's socially democratic ways to do it. There's, uh, you know, odd Marx-Leninist ways. But the, the, the fact is, is that what you're talking about, where you need capitalism to build socialism, is the basis of Marx-Leninist thinking. <laughs> like all of these, the whole point was always to take the factories from the capitalists. To so take to make sure control of the actual this, wealth. To make sure I understand this, you're essentially saying that you dodge this problem of worker co-ops potentially not working in capital-intensive industries because every capital-intensive industry, you would just have the workers take control of that industry themselves, Correct. right? Direct so control. That does not answer my question of how do new industries start afterwards? So that would depend. It could happen a number of ways. You could have a form of market socialism where the workers themselves would crowdfund essentially when they think that there's a new cool idea. You know, once again, my comic book right now is being crowdfunded. It's incredible, like how much you can actually draw. And that's from people who are just interested in this kind of thing. So if you imagine we've got some really cool new industries and things that people want to happen, you could see crowdfunding happen because again, once these workers own their the means of production, when they will have an ability to actually produce and control real wealth. And that will translate into an ability to fund other ventures. And that would be a kind of- I just, Yeah. Well, I just want to say a couple things here real quick. Uh, first of all, 
uh, I think that, again, the framing of this is a little bit odd because it's like, and this is always happens with these debates, is that the socialists mm -hmm. have to brick by imaginary brick build an imaginary society that doesn't exist right now. Although there are, <laughs> like Brenton was talking about, socialist examples like Spanish, or sorry, not Spanish, anarchist Catalonia was mm -hmm. a you know great example um, of Mondragon success in the past. But regardless, it's kind of like a little bit uh, unfair for us to have to build this imaginary example of how socialism could work flawlessly and build this big imaginary government system when capitalism currently right now is not functioning well for the vast majority of people on the planet Earth. So I just want to see your your thought experiments, and I want to see your ideas about how we could imaginarily make capitalism function, because the fact is it's not functioning right now. Like, I want to correct something yeah. I said earlier. Mm -hmm. I said something. I said uh, that the capitalists own 50% of the world's wealth. I misspoke. That was just me, frankly, just misspeaking. Uh, they own the same amount as 50% of the world's workers, which is still completely egregious in my mind, and, yeah. and evidence that capitalism is not currently working for the messenger of human beings. I'm yeah. gonna jump in here just really quick. I wanna give um, the capitalist side a little bit of time to respond to your question yep. um, because there has been a lot of um, a lot of well, yeah, we have to build a whole imaginary society, so it takes time to do that. I, okay, I get yeah. that. So go ahead, go ahead and respond. Go <laughs> first, Layman. Do you want me to? What was the question again? <laughs> there was I a just, lot. I feel like. Yeah, there's so much. I, I, I think like, my question would be: What can, can you build the imaginary society where capitalism functions for the majority of people on Earth, like where most people are not suffering the way that they are right now? Well, my give well, me your thought experiment. Well, well, I don't really have an imaginary society built in my head, and that's kind of my point. Then why right? do we need like, one? <laughs> I just don't get well, the because, because, framing. Well, because this well, because this society that you guys want hasn't. I mean, you said there was an experiment, right? So it's like, okay, what was it, Barcelona or uh, so Catalonia? You've got anarchist Catalonia, just... revolutionary Catalonia is one. Okay. That was in the '30s. It's, so... it's not really relevant to today's material conditions, yeah. but okay. It's, okay, it's, fair it's, enough. It's, it's impressive still. I like it. It's. Cool I just, I just, I just don't, I just don't see what else we or do. Or the Soviet Union putting people like going from an agrarian society in 1917 to putting pe people in space first 30 years later. I think that yeah, I mean, I I'm not think, even a Marxist Leninist, but I think that's pretty, I don't think, yeah, I just, I just don't think we want to be in a position where we're defending the Soviet union. Right. They built, well, like, they, I don't you, think you're you talking guys about how do you build industry do without capital? They, they, you, I'm sorry if you don't like the Soviet union, I'm not a big fan of the Soviet union either, since I'm an anarchist, but you asked, how can you build industry without capital? They built a space program, Dread a bunch that. of farmers built a space program. Okay, but I'm saying this, that the Soviet Union built a space program. They went from being farmers to having a space program faster than capitalists did. And the yeah. capitalists had a much better starting See, position. We don't so have to get into the union stuff. That this is a whole other line. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, well, okay, look, because... I, but, I would but, love so to fight that because I don't happen. think it's... I mean, do we do we want to go into it? Because well, there we, are we don't, plenty... We don't have to use I, the USSR. I, I, yeah. Okay, so hang on. I had a couple of uh, well, I just, specific examples you can look at. One second. You don't have to like them to say that it's... I mean, this is ridiculous. This is like a taboo or something they, they did build industry without capital whether you like them or not whether you like the way they did it or not the question that the, the opponents fate uh, asked was how do you build industry if you don't have capital and that's what they did now we could say whether that's a good way to do it or a bad way to do it or whatever by the way people built industries before capitalism ever existed if you really want a great example look at all of human history before capitalism existed <laughs> they built things they developed I science they had asking, technology is i just want to answer the last question before i get into yeah. this argument that's <laughs> really all i'm asking go on, for. Go on. Mm -hmm. okay um oh god i have to remember what it was now all right you're asked um to to build like the imaginary like perfect capital society right i think was what it was yeah okay whatever uh, like, you're asking us to do with the experiment i want to see you do the same thing i want you to meet your own standard yeah That's sure so to so, like be clear like i'm i'm trying i really am like trying not to make the the burner proof you're like too like counterweighted the problem is is that it's there's a fine line to walk here between asking you guys to participate in an argument where 
like the the absolute empirical experiment isn't there versus like capitalists having to defend capitalism which has existed in many forms for all this time and has many different flaws versus like this more theoretical socialism that kind of gets to get away with not having as much empirical stuff on it so we don't get to see all the nuanced real world flaws that we otherwise yeah, would but right? I, I mean the, I, the peasants medieval peasants could have had this exact same argument before the rise of capitalism i mean just that it, it's biased well, at, towards the point in history where we're at yeah, but medi medieval peasants right. didn't have the gonna, resources to run experiments and stuff. But go on, Trent. No, um, they, had, well, they had like one third of the year off. So like, I don't, sure, let's go on, Trent. On, I don't. I don't think I need to build an imaginary capitalist society because I think that I right now capitalism is serving the vast majority of people of the world over very well. Okay. So and I'm, one of the major, <laughs> one of the major. I know. Yeah, Eric Justin said he has some data on this. Like, if you want to like drop that and have me look it over, that'd be great. One of the major examples of this is that one trend, one pattern that has held and is still holding to this day, um, like globally for the most part. We can look at individual exceptions. Is that as workers' uh, wages increase, they their protections in increase as well as time goes on, especially when we see underdeveloped countries transitioning into more developed countries. We see um, the, an increase in income get matched with an increase in labor protections. And this is what has happened over the past like 30, 40 years in a lot of Eastern Asia and a lot of like uh, Northern and Southern Africa. Now, if we want to talk about maybe like right now, there's like some blips in the trends or something. I'm not no. Super familiar, right? With that, if you have those, feel free. Yeah. But the pattern for the That's past several decades has been that. The right? pattern is only and there. And we can see mm -hmm. that these these like capitalist like trade deals and inter and interconnectivity that comes about from this like capitalist system, what you call imperialism, that this does have really good effects. In addition to the TPP example I mentioned earlier, when you brought up the the fact that trade unions were like legalized in the past year, that was actually a consequence of the TPP. That's what made that happen. Right. So we can see that these these capitalist frameworks, we can see this as a vehicle for exporting greater protections and greater welfare and prosperity in the I want to know where you're what where, where are you getting this information from? Can I get this I, is from the diplomat? Yes. Why are I can we arguing about the right TPP? Now. Exactly. Because the TPP is a beautiful example of how um, oh, countries God. operating under with capitalist interests and largely driven by uh, capitalist leaders can craft policies that serve all all members, including like underdeveloped countries. You know, another example that I will give you um, is um, the Zapatistas in Chiapas who've been doing extremely well. And uh, again, also like the Zapatistas, the whole movement came about because of the monstrous conditions forced upon them by NAFTA, the, the TPP of the 90s. So like, I really, like if we wanna have a debate on the TPP, we can do that. But let me, two things that I, I really wanna get into here. Um, the question that I wanna ask you guys to do is how do you solve the problem? You don't have to come up with a whole capitalist society. Take the capitalist society that we have right now, take the TPP and, um, Give me a way that how do you solve the problem that success in the market means the, the person rises both in terms of uh, social clout and soft power and also money and hard power and how when you are successful in the market and when you attract more wealth and power to yourself, you gain the ability to either lobby or to run for office where you get to rewrite the rules to your liking. How do you solve that problem of those people 
who rise, you know, by their bootstraps or however you want to do that to, to the, the highest levels of our society, having different interests from the people who live in our society, from the vast majority of us. Like, and specifically with regard to workers' protection, because they don't want to give us workers' protection. They don't want anything other than the maximum return for the minimum investment. So how do you solve that issue? Do you want to take that layman or do you want me to? Just let me jump in really fast. I'm sorry. I know I'm doing this a lot. Um, How do you guys feel about since uh, socialists started off – if everyone's okay with it, the capitalists can finish, can answer these questions and finish up, and then we can get on to Q and A. Is that good? Yeah, sure. Everyone? Yeah, that, that seems fair to me. Yeah. Okay. All right, Trenton, you go first. Yeah. So my answer to that, I guess, is like twofold. Like one, um, I agree this happens to like some extent, but I take issue with some of the specific framing here, Brenton. I don't. Because you are referring, at least to me, I might be misinterpreting you. It sounds to me like you are. Re- taking the the private sector and the, that private world and the the public sector and public officials and politics in its entirety and you're acting as though these are the same market i just do not believe that's true um i do not think the things selected for here are at all like that similar i think this is evident through the numerous like prominent businessmen that have taken that shot at the election at uh public office especially in, in the last election that like theoretically like people like Bloomberg and Yang should have been selected for by the algorithm. But it's once they entered this alternate market that is public politics, that that algorithm did not serve them well. Um, the other, uh, as far as like, the, the, the other thing I want to mention in that is that Bloomberg I think- was mayor so- of New York for freaking 12 years and rewrote the city. <laughs> Right. right and that but that it served him really really well he just didn't should, get president by your logic though as successful as he was in the private world he should have gone on even further he right? did go on even further i mean like, again, he got he, like no votes in the democratic primary well like, yeah he did again about? yeah because he's got no charisma but at the same More time capital was right behind which says that Biden there's two different markets that select different things all right yeah. well anyways the second <laughs> thing i wanted to talk about was that i think that the in in terms of solving this problem or what existed this problem. I think the best way to do that is it has to be rooted in social movements and has been rooted in social movements. Namely, like we need to address this these ridiculous levels of voter apathy in America that we don't even see reflected in most other capitalist nations, right? And we've seen tangible progress on that in the past, uh, you know, two, four, six years in America. And I think we need to keep that going forward. If we get higher turnout, if we get more educated voters, if we get people interested and invested in politics by doing things like this, right, which is really cool, then that's how we get people who are voting um for politicians that aren't going to do some of the horrible things that you mentioned earlier in terms of like foreign policy and worker protections and whatnot and i think to some extent the democratic party has been that it's not as great as we'd like it to be but the democratic party has to some extent always been in favor of you know increasing you know worker protections and things like that so you layman all you yeah i just i don't really i just think that that last question was like very very loaded um no disrespect brenton (laughs) but uh I just could have probably uh, phrased it better. No worries. But uh, it's just the only way that I know like how I can answer a question like that is just I don't understand why 
um, if we have problems with capitalism, that we have to address it with replacing it with a worker ownership model. And that's kind of my problem is like, usually when I go into discussions about this stuff, and if I'm trying to find like, oh, how can we make society better or something like that is just the average fucking dude living in society. I, I, I just try to see like, okay, well, here, can we measure this? Have people measured this? Let's see if this works. Let's see if this works. And then if this can be passed through policy, then let's do that. And if you know, there's some horrible thing that nobody is addressing and nobody's exploring, then with we exercise our freedom of speech to let people know, hey, we don't fucking like the system as it exists. Let's do something about it. And then perhaps that will influence how politicians respond to the public going forward and things like that. So that's that I just don't know how you completely replace like a global economic system, how that's more pragmatic. And that's something like better that you could do when we don't even know if something like that could work then that and i can i can just close on that and we can go to q and a i guess because yeah current system is just a really nice. environment though just point that out there global climate change yeah. about nine years left at best so that's just a big problem i, I really applaud particularly um uh, uh trenton um splinters on that i think you know i agree that a social movement that gets people involved in politics and gets them out uh, you know in the streets and puts pressure is a great idea the problem is we tried that it was called occupy wall street and M mayor bloomberg uh released freaking helicopters to prevent uh coverage from the air and marched in his freaking troops broke my friend's skulls dragged them out of their beds in the middle of the night like when we try to do that they attack us and that's why, like, I, I'm saying we have to do something about the state. That's why I'm an anarchist. But you can also say, like, but I could also point to another example where we've been able to positively, you know, express disdain towards something that perhaps we can attribute to profit motives that led to positive social change without overthrowing capitalism. Like, look at slavery, like the transatlantic slave trade. There was a civil, there was a civil war, which fucking sucked. But you know, like you the, know, the most even, destructive war in American history. <laughs> well, I mean, oh, I guess know, we could do that again. No, I don't want to do that again. But what I'm saying is that, like, you know, the, the, if if something gets that bad, the people tend to speak for themselves, and then we yeah, can do that. Uh, but it doesn't seem like, but wait, wait, but it doesn't seem like that's happening. Is well, it's happened. Well, did you not see like the freaking were... street? How many protests? Oh, did 10 to 15 percent of Americans were in the streets risking their lives uh, during the covid pandemic. <laughs> and, and because of black light, uh, obviously, uh, really, it was because of uh, that was because of the police state. Though, because of capitalism. It wasn't just yeah, because it, racism and well, capitalism you don't think are that inherently the police... tied to each other. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, uh, I don't have time to go into that. But, yeah. right. We don't have time. I can't believe we have to leave off on that. But go on, Carissa. Let's go to Q&A. That's, yeah <laughs> look round, episodes like two through 36 are on their way up <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I feel like you guys could just have like a podcast be like that might be fun <laughs> I know. Yeah, oh jesus cool. christ yeah, let's <laughs> all right let's get to the question i'd, I'd be down <laughs> i'd love to have you guys on the channel sometime you're both very i don't smart. think anyone wants to talk to me though <laughs> i love talking to you ej and we, we need to do that among us stream soon you i want to that's what we should, we should do among us stream I want to, on the record, that when I was in high school, I actually, no, it was college. I actually reached out to EJ and he didn't answer me. All right. So <laughs> I never, it's not just People you. Do I don't want you on their show. I don't believe in the concept of an inbox. <laughs> I Send me another email though. I'll, I'll check it. No, I, I, check fine, more I, I, email, I emailed EJ from, for like two years. <laughs> yeah. Emails are bourgeois uh, yeah. construct that I don't believe in. <laughs>
right. I apologize. I didn't mean to. Uh, so are we, we going into the Q&A? Yes, we are. First one is from Cider and Port. They say, question for capitalists. Are you against the socialist program slash institutions in America right now or the new ones such as healthcare? Healthcare is not a socialist policy. The universal healthcare exists in many, many capitalist countries to, to great effect. So, yeah. And I'm in favor of universal healthcare. Like, again, as I said at the beginning, I'm, I don't intrinsically value uh, profits and stuff like that only insofar as, you know, what positive effects you can get from society. And it seems like there's nothing intrinsic to it that leads to harmful outcomes. That's all. So. Um, yeah, I, I largely agree with that. As far as like the opposition to like whatever socialist, you know, groups, organizations in America, um, I, I wouldn't say I'm opposed to them. Um, what's in, what's nice about like talking about this, this socialism stuff is that when it comes to socialism, my disagreements to socialism are more like, well, this isn't the best way we could do it, right? It's not like I'm talking to alt-right people and socialists are going to do some crazy demonstrable harm, okay? Like, when I'm arguing against socialism and against socialists, it's more like I'm fighting with my brother or something. So, no, I'm not opposed to the socialist organizations. I think that America could use some over to window shifting. I hope they continue to grow. I'm opposed to the socialist organizations, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, I, I'm just opposed like I in general. We have, to, we have to do this in quotes, socialist organizations. Yeah, like, socialist. Fact, it's not, they're not socialist organizations. That's right. why. But, but screw all socialists who aren't me. <laughs> <laughs> Next one is from Helianthus with $5. Thank you so much. They say, at Brenton, are capitalist and worker mutually exclusive? Um... No, but one person can be one or the other at a given point in, in time. The way I draw the distinction between a capitalist and a worker is where does your primary income come from? If it comes from investment, from owning something like, uh, you know, a rental property or a business or stock, then you're a capitalist. If your primary uh, income comes from labor that you do, like you sell your labor to someone else in exchange for money, that means you're a worker. Gotcha. All right. Next one is from Gabriel K. He says, Pfizer is a rotten um, capitalist company. Oh, the irony. I mean, yeah. Uh, like, <laughs> that, I'm, that, Well, that vaccine was developed in conjunction with five different entities, one of which is Vietnamese, if I'm not mistaken. So if that yeah. was supposed to be an own, then go Vietnam. Vietnam yeah, I, I mean, go Vietnam, one party state. Yeah, <laughs> go on. Yeah, I mean, capitalist countries can um, like, or I'm sorry, capitalist businesses can still do good things. Like, yeah. you, I'm the workers. Yeah, it's not like the workers developed that vaccine, not the freaking shareholders, not the capitalists. The workers developed that vaccine. Yeah. So, gotcha. I don't, I don't see that as a point. All right, next one is from Con the Stoner Lynn. They say, for all, what do you think of mutualism or left wing market anarchism? anarchism and thinkers like pierre joseph about proud hun Proudhon. <laughs> I, I even know french i shouldn't i say it different every Proudhon. time so that way i cover all my bases. I literally i wrote a sketch i wrote a sketch where the mutualist like it's, it's on my channel it's called um anarcho about five anarchists trying to run a pizza shop in post-revolutionary brooklyn and uh the, the mutualist mispronounces Prudonas exactly the way you did. Oh no. I'm a suburban lib dog. I don't even know what mutualism means. I'm sorry. Brennan Bre and EJ I, I can educate me on that sometimes. They, they also asked about groups like C4SS. I'm not sure what that 
That's society for yeah, Center for a Stateless Society. Um, why don't we let um, uh, Layman go first? Because I think you had something. Yeah, I uh, I don't know much about the C4SS. I think I said that right. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I don't know much about that or what was his name? Pierre something? Pierre Joseph Proudhon. Okay. First person to ever, he was part of like the, the French um, uh, like parliament. And so like he was the first person to ever call himself a political anarchist. Okay. Yeah, I don't know much about him. Um, mutual aid, though, uh, I, I actually, from a virtue ethics perspective, really, really love the idea of people uh, just out of their own, just out of their own voluntary goodness, their own voluntary altruistic virtue, um, providing pe providing resources to people who otherwise don't have that. I think it's a, actually, I'm, I'm, it's probably my favorite leftist idea, if I was to pick one, is the mutual aid stuff. So, yeah. For what PJ, little there wanna, are you want to take that? yeah well okay I, i'll piggyback on that for me mutual aid is not just giving money for like charity where it's like morally good to give people things that they don't have because you feel sorry for them mutual aid to me means you're contributing to the society because you know that you might one day need that benefit yourself so if you're giving to a homeless shelter it's because you know there's a chance that one day you might be homeless if you're donating to people with disabilities you know that every human being will either die or become disabled at some point in their life uh so that to me is what distinguishes mutual aid from charity it's basically like uh, contributing to a system so that we all collectively benefit and the lifting tide rises all the boats. But as far as mutualism goes, just my personal opinion, um, I consider mutualists to be comrades, even though I don't think that markets are the most efficient way to distribute things. I would much rather live in a mutualist society than a capitalist society. So, um, and, you know, if there was like a big mutualist revolution, I would support it, but it's just not my, you know, favorite uh, blend of tea, you know, but yeah. I just want to, I just want to clarify too. I wasn't, I wasn't, <laughs> I completely. I wasn't trying that... to define your. Yeah, okay, I, I wasn't yeah. like attacking okay. you. I was just giving my. That <laughs> was right. like decoupled from what you said. So because I because I because I, I, I think because I think that the number one reason to give charity is with the pre with with the assumption in mind that I ought to treat others as I expect it to be treated. Right. So if I'm giving to an organization that shelters the homeless, the idea is that if I was homeless someday that 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 would be reciprocated unto me yeah yeah everybody makes a society better for everybody if they're not to be homeless people it's not just yeah to, to be honest like all yeah human societies ran on those kinds of systems before the rise of the state that's how we function for the vast majority of our of our history now mutualism like as an economic plan like you know you look at like the the work of uh benjamin tucker and like spooner uh with regard to stuff like um i, I love i really do like the idea of like a commons where we can all go and like you know you need specific tools go get them from the commons like you've got like a library to lend tools or anything that you possibly could need there i i think it's a good system i, I do consider them comrades and i usually try to help ancaps realize that they're actually mutualists they're actually very confused mutualists or they're fascists <laughs> and, um, but like um I, I like it c4ss i i really side eye them hard um they've they put out some good stuff but they like caucus with some awful people sometimes and i think some guy spengler who was a big writer for them a number of years ago like wrote about like um you know oh what if the child consents and then wound up abusing his daughter um so like like i, I side eye c4ss but i i, I don't hate them because <laughs> again you know they're not spangler it's just there's in the the right libertarian influence on them is a, is a little to me i thought egon spangler was an ancap um 
That he was may have been an ANCAP who wrote. Sorry, no, that's just... the thing. They wrote. They they wrote. He wrote for C4SS, which there was the Ghostbusters. Too much... did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That was not worth. Yeah, that, that was funny. Well, not, <laughs> moving on. Ghostbusters is a libertarian. It's libertarian propaganda. So. It is. <laughs> Next question is from Con the Stoner Lynn again. They say capitalists look into Robert Owen and New Harmony. Oh. <laughs> That's all I can say to that. <laughs> Sounds good. I love reading stuff. I've actually, I've actually like my best friend since I was five years old is a socialist. He, I, I, I actually think he likes your channel, non compete. So. I, I, if he's Hi, jealous as fuck out. of me, uh, <laughs> that's it. But, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, I actually read like a ton of fucking Karl Marx and Engels just so I could talk about it with him for a while. So I'm always down to like read that shit. It's interesting. So yeah. Yeah. That's fun. You should read The Conquest of Bread because I think the only mm. people on BreadTube who've actually read it are like me and EJ. <laughs> is that where the name BreadTube comes that from? That is, is where the name is. Conquest of Bread? Most people don't know that. Even the origin story. <laughs> That's yeah. incredible. I'm learning straight facts today. Yeah. Peter <laughs> Conquest of Bread. Cool. Next one is from, um, again, from Con the Stoner. They say, New Harmony, Indiana is your example. You're welcome. Okay. Oh, is that the, is that the capitalist? It, uh, is that where a bunch of libertarians like try to start a city? Um, it may have that, been. I, I get I all wrong? this stuff crossed up. It, people should also look into, by the way, or is that a um, Is the co-op wars? There's a great episode of politics uh, of a podcast oh, no, no. called The Dollop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, I think this was a utopian. Um, oh, one of the American utopian communities. Yeah, the American. And, and by the way, Marx destroyed American utopianism. So if anybody's really interested in that, uh, Marx talked about American utopianism a lot and explained exactly why. And Kropotkin as well, actually. Kropotkin also destroyed American utopianism. It wasn't. It was like a proto form of socialism, but it was really not socialism at all. Um, but I guess that would be a rabbit hole we don't want to go down to down right gotcha. now. But. Yeah, it's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> Next one is from Spart three four four. They say the kibbutz system failed miserably once they came became capitalistic. The lives of those people living on the kibbutz improved oh boy um ej you want to take that with the i'm not sure i fault can can we get that read one more time yeah I... the kibbutz system failed miserably once they became oh. capitalistic the lives of those people living on the kibbutz improved okay i mean uh in israel that's the bizarre i mean the, so uh, there, that, that's not really like i could go and cherry pick any kind of I don't, that's cherry picking. I, I, I could go and find all kinds of situations where capital's industry, like look at the way that Pinochet and the Chicago boys completely ruined and rolled back all of the progress that Allende made in Chile. So I guess that's my response. If you're going to cherry By the pick, way, cherry Chile, pick, just over, Chile just overturned the um, Pinochet constitution uh, democratically. Yeah. They, they, they threw that off hard and it, it took a long time, but I'm so happy about it. I mean, I could go on. Argentina is another example. There's lots of examples where, I mean, you could say that the French uh, instituted capitalism under their colonial rule in Vietnam. And certainly uh, the lives of Vietnamese people have improved since that French capitalist colonialist rule ended there. I mean, I could cherry pick countless, countless examples. So I, I don't really feel that's a point to be made. Gotcha. This was something I don't know anything I about the kibbutz system, to... but just even if that's true, it's it's like maybe the kibbutz yeah. system sucked. That's probably what happened. I don't know. I think, the, yeah, I, I mean, the kibbutz system is not something that I've looked deeply into. Um, what I will say is there's plenty of, of counterexamples. So if it is indeed as crappy as you said it was, there's a number of reasons why it wouldn't necessarily be socialism. What I'd also like to point out uh, is like, okay, so 
oftentimes when we talk about like people doing better or people doing worse, the, uh, the we measure them by the values that are generated by capitalist society. And this is one of the reasons why I inherently uh, rejected uh, what, what Splinter had said about like things getting better for people around the world. A good example might be Cambodia. Uh, and this was before Pol Pot. Um, and bef- and it was actually worse. Like, But Cambodia was a nation of peaceful um, Theravada Buddhists. And Westerners came and they found that they, these uh, Theravada Buddhists, they worked six months out of the year and they rested six months out of the year and did whatever. And they introduced new Western methods of to increase and double their crop yields. And the people uh, just went and uh, worked three months out of the year because their things had doubled. And the Westerners got mad and were like, no, no, you're supposed to go and earn this money and put this stuff out. So they began to institute like, systems of currency uh, that, that weren't really used and put in, impose this Western capitalistic model. And this led to before Pol Pot, huge like freaking riots where babies were torn in half like but with people's bare hands like it, it destabilized the country and destroyed their traditional way of life um and yeah they were a little bit richer but you know torn up babies so you can always say that like oh people are doing better because they're making more money but money isn't real it's it, it is an intelligence system it's a measure of wealth what is actually real are resources plus labor plus intelligence that's what 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 is actually going to measure like how a person is doing better or worse i think trent wants to respond to that <laughs> go for it buddy let the questions go it's fine uh, yeah, talk about okay. it some other time <laughs> all right all right next rematch is actually for brenton um, yes <laughs> it's from raven zero they say brenton how is your socialist economy um hold on how would your socialist economy help the common folk, especially um, the people that our example is the people. I'm sorry. It's, it's worded very strangely. I'm trying to figure out what they're trying to say. Example, the people that work on Walmart and the people work as heart surgeon. Sure. Um, well, I can actually answer that because my father is a doctor and my uncle is a surgeon. Um, and, uh, I also, you know, know plenty of people that work hourly jobs. Uh, the fact is, is that socialism, my socialism would free these people up to do the actual work that they want to do. You know, um, one of the worst things for doctors when they get involved with medicine is the business of medicine rather than actually serve serving the people. Cause most doctors get into the field, not to become ridiculously wealthy because, Trust me, you, you, if you want to be ridiculously wealthy, don't be a doctor. You'll get good money. But like, if you don't draw satisfaction from actually helping people, you'll probably kill yourself um, because the doctors act- actually have very high suicide rates as well. Um, now, uh, as far as somebody working at Walmart hourly, um, what will happen under my system of socialism is workers will control their workplace and how they do it. So the heart surgeons will be the ones making the important decisions about surgery, not hospital administrators. And similarly, um, when you're at Walmart, the people that actually work at Walmart will have a stake and will have control over their workplace and how they do things, when they stock the shelves, how much everybody gets paid. 
Um, you know, and the fact of the matter is, is that when you actually have real tangible control over what you're doing, when you, you are one, because you're the worker, you're the one actually doing the work, you know it better than anyone else could possibly know it. And two, you actually develop a lot more satisfaction from what you're doing because you are taking your unique skills and you're putting them to, to, to work in a way that makes the world tangibly better for everyone, whether that means stocking the shelves at Walmart or doing heart surgery and saving somebody's life. Gotcha, all right. We actually only have one more question. Um... It's from Danny XX. He says, the Soviet government ex expropriated capital from the people. Uh, no. It's... At which, well, I would say at which point are you talking about? Because the Soviet Union is very, very complicated and changed many, many times into many different sorts of entities. I mean, you could say like, are you, are you talking about in like the 70s and 80s when they started to open up and have all those market reforms, which ultimately led to the, the downfall of the Soviet Union? Then I would say that's definitely true. I mean, it depends on where you're talking about. Are you talking about one of the satellite nations? Or are you talking about like the core of the USSR itself? I mean, that's a that's an oversimplification, but I think there's truth to it. So I would I would recognize mm -hmm. the point, but with nuance, you know, with the, with the added point that you have to have nuance when talking about the USSR. It's very complicated. Uh, yeah, I, I said no, because the USSR, I mean, prior to um, the USSR, the like the the Romanovs, it was a yeah. quasi-feudal country, and sure. they took property from the nobility, not from the people. Yeah, the I most, think, kind of like 1917, that was definitely not true. Yeah. I also think that if you're a socialist, it's probably within your best interest to not defend a totalitarian society, just in general. Not speaking to you guys, but just in, just in general, perhaps. As a dialectical materialist, I don't essentialize things like that. There are things that the USSR did that were horrific, and there are things that they did that where they had success, like going from an agrarian culture to a space-faring society and faster than capitalism. And with, with when capitalism had a better starting point, I'm not defending. I'm not a statist. I'm not a, a Marxist-Leninist, but I'm just saying, like, you could talk about the USSR. I'm not. I don't believe that the USSR is a taboo. I think we can look at it. We can talk about it. We can examine it, and we can find. Uh, truth and in, in, in what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. In, in really my only recommendation would be convert as many people as possible to that dialectic materialism before you bring up the society. <laughs> That's exactly what I try to do. Yeah, 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 but you, you were talking about how more people need to learn to think critically, and that's Absolutely. key. Like, I mean, you could that's say why I said thing. do this critically yeah. thinking thing. First. I think that right. the working right. class is capable of learning how to uh, analyze situations. I'm not yeah, afraid. I totally to agree. Talk about things like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say I'm not. You know, I'm not a tanky. I'm not a tank commander. <laughs> um, the um, what I what I would say is is that like. Um, you could just as easily make the argument that like, oh, how can you defend the imperialist fascist United States? They I don't defend that. Yeah, but, <laughs> you, but it's the same thing. We that. can talk sometimes some aspects of American democracy are really awesome. And, and or Sweden. Be, how yeah, can you Sweden defend or... the imperialist Sweden, which has like left its uh, workers in Russia who are migrant workers from the Middle East to doom? under covid like how can you defend those imperialist well sweden is still uh, well sweden is still well sweden is still thriving right and we can disavow that there's room for nuance for sweden my yeah, point in saying that was well, wait, my, wait, wait, my point in saying that though was that the ussr failed it collapsed there was there because of and, market and, reforms, and i would say well, wait, 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 wait. and i was no, and i just i just wanted to say <laughs> I think a lot of the a lot of positive things with the USSR because from what I understand, like Lenin, you know, managed to like increase like wages and like universal healthcare and all that stuff. Something I hear a lot from tankies 
typically who defend these societies like in their totality and stuff is that like oh well there was universal health care there there was like wages there it's like it seems like there's other societies that, that we can do this with benefits from yeah so i yeah. i find i when people start bringing up like the ussr and like these like one party like authoritarian places i just i'm just it just raises a ton of red flags, ton of hairs on the back of my neck, you know? I mean, I don't blame Yeah, but you. I mean, like, you, you just, you're, you're, again, I think that I don't want to get into, this is probably a whole other debate, and I don't want to get into the position where I'm seen as defending the USSR because I'm not. But even the fact, the idea that it's like totalitarian and one party rule and everything like that, there are definitely accounts where an American went to the Soviet Union in the 30s and talked about how he, as a worker in this little village, was able to actually go and vote and go to these council meetings that are very democratic. So, and that was at one point in the history of the USSR, and then later it became much more totalitarian, and then later, the Khrushchev had reforms that made it more democratic. I mean, this was a long and and very kind of uh, hegemonic, uh, I'm sorry, a heterogeneous history where the, the USSR was constantly undergoing changes. So you got like, that, I just Carissa? don't think that, that is The USSR debate is on the horizon. Let's <laughs> oh, Jesus, no. <laughs> I, I, I'd rather argue against the USSR, Let's but I do just it. don't want to essentialize or, character, or mischaracterize yeah. Yeah, a I very complicated subject. Sure. So <laughs> Sounds good. Well, yeah, there's a lot of propaganda out there, like on both sides of the thing. Like the Black Book of Communism is complete bullcrap. Um, there's a lot of stuff when, the, like, you'll you'll hear ANCAPs talk about like the various fa uh, famines, for instance, in the Soviet Union and in China. And then if you look into the history of that, it goes down to like one jackass scientist named Lysenko who did not believe in. Um, he didn't believe in evolution. He thought he didn't believe in the theory of evolution because he said the theory yeah. of evolution was like the bourgeois. It's like it's like a bourgeois yeah. controlling. Well, no, no, he said it was fascist. <laughs> but like, but but beyond that, like, here's the thing: Lysenko was saying things that were convenient to people yeah. in power, in much the same way Steven Pinker says things that are convenient to people in power. And people in power were like, oh, let's boost this guy up, and they put him in charge of their agriculture program. His his theories didn't work. They lied about it. Then freaking China heard about it, believed the propaganda, and you have the, the, the famines that happened during the Great Leap Forward. Like it, it came down to that one jackass being raised. So I, I think like a lot of the time is one of the things that we need to be careful about is we don't want to essentialize an entire country. Um, and, and two, we want to see exactly what these problems are and where they come from. And maybe it's not a good idea to centralize power in a couple of pans because yeah. those people are idiots. <laughs> yeah. All right. just, just speaking from a, a last really quick point, I live in Vietnam and I've seen so much misinformation about Vietnam that I just I my interest is always just to find the truth. OK, and like there are things that Vietnam does really, really well. There are some things I have criticism of. I just don't like to like pretend that it's all an all or nothing kind of game. So that's why I bristle and push back. And, okay, and I sorry. and I'm totally fine with acknowledging nuance. You know, I'm, I don't think that if somebody says like, oh, well, there's one thing the USSR did that was like kind of good. You know, I don't think someone's like inherently like some crazy fucking like fucking like far left motherfucker who's just like totally off the deep end and whatever yeah. I, i'm fine with doing that it's just the problem is i would prefer to look at societies that are continuing to thrive where they do but these they're very violent societies those societies that are you're saying are thriving well, every society violent. is violent. Hurting hey, hey guys every society like, that has I ever existed Carissa, has been violent. i'm sorry this is a great human nature great discussion <laughs> but i think marissa's got something she wants to say I do. I think that we should definitely have you all on again. You guys are awesome. <laughs>
Thank you. I, I'm down if anybody will tolerate me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm, sorry. So much. I'm not a like debater and I don't do a lot of these. So I really am sorry. I know I was like emotional and that's like, if you're, if you have feels, then you lose the debate. So I'm sorry. And I'm sorry if I stepped on people, I'm not really so used to this format. So I'm sorry. Yeah, you you fucking SJW cuck over here. <laughs> Non-compete. <laughs> well, we'll definitely have can't to compete have you. with the facts. <laughs> have to have you all on again, and thank you for taking the time out of all of your busy schedules. I know it was mm -hmm. kind of hard to to plan and coordinate, so thank you, thank you for that. And to the audience, thank you so much for watching. Uh, don't forget that there is actually a debate tomorrow on theism, so be sure to tune into that and keep on sorting the reasonable from the unreasonable and have a wonderful night. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.